Meanwhile, in the darker corners of the DC Universe, which just might give you a case of vertigo. And welcome to the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This is another of our Meanwhile episodes. Now, these Meanwhile installments break from the usual numbered issues to provide a chance to look at the JLI outside of the ongoing monthly series. Now, my name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, folks. But guess what? I brought along some friends. I've got three different co-hosts today to help me tackle some vertigo-inducing comics. Today, we'll be looking at the darker side of DC Comics and some JLI appearances in those other books, series which would eventually become the foundation of the Vertigo imprint. Now, we're going to talk about the JLI appearances in Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol and Animal Man, as well as the JLI appearance in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. In this episode, each series will have a different co-host, and for now, we're here on Danny the Street to talk about Doom Patrol number 28 and 29, with my co-host for this segment. Since these issues take place in France, we've got another international guest. In fact, we've got two international guests for this episode. Get it? Justice League International? Clever, huh? Hmm. So, with a story set in Paris, of course our guest hails from Australia. Alright, I, I didn't plan that very well. Well, my co-host is not actually a clinical psychiatrist. He does play one on a podcast. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Mike Garvey. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing really well, Shag. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here and very excited to be discussing the Justice League and the Patrol in a story together. That's going to be really cool. I'm looking forward to getting Dr. Hoofenstoffer Lopper Dopper's opinion on Grant Morrison's psychedelic trip here. So this should be fun. Yeah, we'll see if we can dial him in a bit later, maybe. Yeah, I know he's a very busy man. He's got this one patient that, oh my gosh, he's <laughs> <laughs> this guy, he's like, I was chatting with Herfin Scherfner the other day. He was talking about this one client, Peter, um, Paul, something, just taking up a lot of his time. So we'll see what we can do. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> I can't even imagine. So, but before we get too deep into that, before we, I, I sit down for my own therapy session, we need to take a second to thank our sponsors, folks. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of 50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the in-stock trades library. Usually, it's tied into that month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. Now, I picked Animal Man. Animal Man! Yeah, that's going to happen a lot this episode. Uh, Animal Man by Graham Morrison, Trade Paperback, Volume 1. So, this collects uh, the first 13 issues of Animal Man by Graham Morrison and the Secret Origins installment. And it's really a fantastic introduction to the character, and you learn about this crazy world that Graham Morrison surrounds him with, and then you start getting into some of the story within the story stuff. Oh, it's so freaking good. If you've never read Animal Man, you get half of the whole Animal Man run in here. So, written by Grant Morrison, art by Chaz Truog and some others, covers by Brian Boland, because they're always amazing. Page counts 376 pages. It normally retails for $29.99, but on in-stock trades right now, it's 42% off, so you can get it for $17.39. Hell of a deal. Now, Mike, the way this works is the guest is normally asked to bring an in-stock trades recommendation. I know in Australia, you guys do things different. Uh, maybe you're going to boomerang this right back at me, I'm not sure, but did you happen to bring a pick? Yes, I did actually, Shag, and I'm going to recommend Doom Patrol Trade Paperback Book 1, which covers issues 19 to 34, which is the start of Grant Morrison's run on Doom Patrol Volume 2, 
uh, and it's actually got the storyline that we'll be talking about shortly. It's got, I guess, the beginning of the whole craziness with, with Rebus, Crazy Jane, Dorothy Spinner, the formation of the new Brotherhood of Data, so uh, some awesome, weird, fun stuff in there. Written by Grant Morrison, art by Richard Case, covers Surprise, again, by Brian Bolland. <laughs> uh, there's 424 pages of, in, in this one. It was 29.99, but uh, you're saving 42% and getting it for $17.39 with InStockTrades.com. Of course, I'm going to be really recommend that one, especially if this storyline piques your interest, dear listener. I recommend you go out and check it out. Thinking about this, if I was like, I don't know, Paul Kupperberg and Steve Lytle, and I saw this was called Doom Patrol Book 1, I'd be a little offended. But anyway, maybe that's mm, just me. Yeah, they could have chosen a slightly better title, maybe. <laughs> well, let's face it, the, the yeah. Patrol never sold that well until Grant came along. So that, I suppose it's fair. True, yeah. All right, folks, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. This episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. You know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a whole bunch of online hosting and there's a lot of fees involved. Now, we launched the Patreon last year and you guys really stepped up to help us keep the network going. In fact, I think it's fair to say without the Patreon support, we wouldn't still be here given the expenses we deal with every month. So if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcast and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. As certain support tiers, you'll even get recognized on your show of choice. Just like these folks, our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, folks, we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear your thoughts about Doom Patrol, Animal Man, Sandman, all the Vertigo books, JLI's appearance in these types of weird, kooky books. So go out on the social medias, use our hashtag, which is poundfwpodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. It's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And again, this little sidestep into some weirdness. I want to hear y'all's thoughts. So uh, as we get started on this, you know, Mike, I'm wondering, what is your personal origin story with the Doom Patrol? I mean, I'm sure you've never talked about it anywhere, and there's probably no place <laughs> on the internet I could ever find no. where you might explain your love of Doom Patrol. But anyway, for the folks at home, why don't you tell us? And I'm such a shy, retiring wallflower as well. Um, <laughs> like any good modern-age Doom Patrol fan, my fascination started with the team during, yes, that's right, Rachel Pollack's run on what? Doom 2. Yeah. <laughs> That, this is the thing. In the early 90s, uh, DC were hyping up the new Vertigo line, and they made mention of the World's Strangest Superhero team, and I thought, you know what? That sounds right up my alley. I'm going to check them out. <laughs> I had no idea who this Grant Morrison fellow was. None whatsoever. <laughs> so I missed all of his run completely, and then, uh, you know, I enjoyed Rachel's run for a while, and then I kind of lost interest, and I was looking to move out of home, so I was trying to be, you know, a big grown-up and pay bills and make my own way in the world. Um, <laughs> so then, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, Doom Patrol were in the back of my mind for a while, but, you know, I was still buying comics and that. And then it was when Volume 5 launched in August of 2009, and I'm, I'm in a comic shop, and I'm browsing away, and I see this robotic-looking guy on the cover of a comic, and I'm thinking, that guy looks familiar. Oh, that's the Doom Patrol. Okay. So the big Doom Patrol logo wasn't the giveaway to that? <laughs> Yes, look, look, I'm getting there, okay? Sorry, it's your story. I'll shut up now. <laughs> 
so I, I checked it out, and that issue is the one that opened the floodgates for my love for the Doom Patrol. It was so well done. As I was buying that volume five by Keith Giffen and Matthew Clark as it was coming out, I was like, oh, that's right. I used to buy them ages ago when they were in the Vertigo line. That's right. So I was then hunting out the Vertigo issues, which is when I discovered Grant Morrison's run and when I finally, you know, caught on to what everyone was talking about. And then I discovered that they were around in the 60s. So I kind of went backwards in time, almost. I discovered that there had been two additional volumes between when Rachel Pollack's run ended and this volume five started. It was volume five, issue one, was the one that really did me in and my wallet, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the issue that hooked me in completely. And yeah, I now gladly have, you know, a couple of shelves full of Doom Patrol stuff. Uh, Surprise, surprise. And and I guess (laughs) what it is about the team that I love so much is that they truly are outsiders and and they've had their lives shaped by, you know, they've each got their own individual trauma. But despite that, they still want to do the right thing, even though the world shuns them and and think that they're completely insane. They're like this found family that has, has come together and they acknowledge their respective differences and they know that the world can be a weird, scary and and downright awful place at times, yet they're still going to do their best to protect you from those things. And and that's what I love about the team. Because as we see in this story, some weird stuff happens. (laughs) They still want to try and save the day as best as they can. Yeah, they're seriously my favourite comic book team of all time, in in case people have never heard me talk about them anywhere else. (laughs) It's a beautiful way to sort of describe the team about how throughout the weirdness, they're just trying to protect it for people. Because um, yeah. a lot of people just look at it and go, this comic is freaking weird. And they just walk away. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. So just thinking about the fact that they're standing up to the weirdness, I guess I hadn't really framed it in my mind that way. So you coming in with Rachel Pollock. Wow. Uh, I'm going to throw a couple of yes. pop culture references at you. You might not get, because I know all you guys care about is dingoes and, and kangaroos down there. <laughs> but um, it's sort of like coming in the last season of X-Files with Agent Rias and Agent Doggett and becoming a fan then. Yes. Or becoming yes. really big fan of Coy and Vance on Dukes of Hazard. Maybe that's maybe that's where you're coming in here because that's uh, Rachel Pollock's a really for wow. me it was a really tough pill to swallow. Yeah, it was. Hey, to defend you a little bit, that X Files reference I threw that actually was me. I did get into X Files in the last season with the replacement, <laughs> so I totally understand where you're coming from. Now, my origin with Doom Patrol, I'll share it very quickly. Now, I will. I, your guys are probably going to hear this multiple times this episode because these segments are being recorded across a couple different months, all out of order. So I'm sure I've actually told this story again. So enjoy it the first time. So uh, for me, I went into a comic shop and I, as you said wanting to be all grown up and such I was 17 and I was like okay I'm I'm tired of these funny books I want to read something serious so I went to the comic shop said mm-hmm. give me something uh, adult give me a, a thinking person's comic and they put in my hands a copy of Sandman number 8 and Doom Patrol number 26 and they both came out within about a month of each other uh-huh. so Doom Patrol 26 that's the first one where Mr. Nobody they tell his origin and you really get to meet the Brotherhood yes. of Dada and it blew my freaking mind I love that comic <laughs> so much I mean I, I seriously went ape crap about it and I'll talk more about the Brotherhood or Dada later. I, I, I'm not kidding about how this uh, affected my life. I was really into it. Now, I think I was already reading Animal Man because of Justice League Europe. I'm pretty sure if I've got my timing right. Like, I started reading Doom Patrol going, oh, it's the same guy. These comics feel very, very different from each other. But uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so, I, so I stuck with Doom Patrol for all the way through Morrison's run. Although, even towards the end, I remember thinking, this is even getting too weird for me. And uh, mm-hmm. once Rachel Pollock came on board, I did struggle with her. I, I, I was never thrilled. And, and, you know, there are people that love Rachel Pollock's run, so I don't mean to disparage it. There yeah. are certainly things to like about it. It just wasn't for me. And that, that's a fair call, yeah. So after that, you know, I, 
I came back for volume three, the John Arcudi volume, which you guys don't realize, but because I just edited all that out, but I couldn't remember any of the people involved and Mike saved my butt, but you don't know that because I edited all that out. Anyway, so yeah, I really enjoyed the volume three run with the newer characters and then the volume five run, like you mentioned, the Keith Giffen, Matthew Clark run was awesome. Mm -hmm. I got to say, this is good timing to record this. I mean, at the time of this recording, you guys are going to hear it a little later, but Doom Patrol season two just started. So very exciting on television. You guys have a TV show. That's insane. For those that don't know, I do a podcast called Waiting for Doom, which is all about the Doom Patrol. We called it Waiting for Doom because when we launched the show six years ago, there was no Doom Patrol comic. In the time since we started doing the show, we have had at least, well, kind of one and a half volumes come back to us. <laughs> uh, and we've, we've had a TV show of this obscure DC property, and the first season was insane, moving fun. And now they're on to their second season. And what I'm hearing about that, because we haven't got it available here in Australia yet. So we are making plans as to how we're going to cover it on our podcast, but that's for another time and place. But yeah, what I'm hearing and reading so far is that it's just as excellent as the first season was. So I'm very excited to see that at some point. The, the fact we have a Doom Patrol TV show, I, I never thought I would live to see such a day. It's insane. <laughs> I'm going to start launching new properties and just call them waiting for and things I want, like waiting to win the lottery and you know things like that. <laughs> see if I can uh, have the old Mike Garvey what luck. I think of that. <laughs> yes, yes. And that hasn't gone to our heads at all. You know, we didn't say on our previous episode that, you know, it's because of our podcast that we have <laughs> the comic back and now a TV show. And, you know, who knows? Maybe one day a movie. I don't know. I oh, my gosh. Magic luck powers, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> you, you have every every luck power that we haven't thought of. So, all right, let's get into the issues here, folks. We're going to talk about Doom Patrol number 28 and 29. Now, remember, you can go out to our website, firewaterpodcast.com, and there'll be an image gallery for this episode, so you'll be able to see a couple of pages from these issues. Now, the creative teams on these books, 28 and 29, uh, stayed the same for both issues, so it's Grant Morrison's the writer, Richard Case is the penciler, John Nyberg is the inker, John Workman's your letterer, Daniel Vazo is your colorist, editor is Mark Wade, and the covers are by Simon Bisley. So I'm going to go through these recaps. I try tried to write what I told Mike was going to be a really brief recap, and then I found out you really can't write a brief recap of a Graham Morrison comic, but <laughs> we're going we're gonna to muddle through this. So, Oh, sweet summer child. <laughs> <laughs> Doom Patrol number 28, cover dated December 1989. It was on the shelves October 31st, 1989. To give you a little bit of perspective, that is the same month that Justice League America number 33 and Justice League Europe number 8 were on the shelves, so this is actually pretty much contemporaneous with where we are in our own podcast coverage of the Justice League books. So, this issue is called Labyrinths. Now, picking up where the previous issue left off, the entire city of Paris has vanished. The city itself and all of its contents have been sucked inside of a painting. Seriously, I'm not I'm not kidding. This is, this is Morrison, guys. Come on, you knew what you were getting into. So, uh, in the empty sandy dunes where Paris used to be, we find Animal Man, Animal Man, Booster Gold, and Blue Beetle <laughs> of the JLI examining the painting that has consumed the city and their teammates from Justice League Europe. They have no clue how to proceed, but thankfully, the champions of weirdness arrive, the Doom Patrol, in the form of Cliff Steele, Rebus, and Crazy Jane. The Doom Patrol snubs the JLI members, though Booster and Beetle weren't exactly being very welcoming to the patrol, and Rebus figures out how to enter the painting, and the Doom Patrol disappears into the canvas, leaving the JLI behind. Inside the painting, the Doom Patrol find themselves looking at the same image of another painting, of a painting, which is repeating and repeating and repeating, an infinitely recursive image, sort of like looking into an infinity mirror. Rebus senses and describes the bad guys responsible for the painting that swallowed Paris, the Brotherhood of Dada. These villains include Mr. Nobody, Frenzy, Sleepwalker, The Fog, and The Quiz. Our heroes become aware of another presence inside the painting also. Some ancient, inhuman intelligence, and it's waking up. 
The Doom Patrol are attacked by the Brotherhood of Dada, specifically a member named Frenzy, which separates the teammates. Cliff finds himself in a version of the painting based upon the Impressionistic era, and later the Modernist art style. Rebus finds themselves in a version of the painting based on futurist principles of art and architecture, and Crazy Jane finds herself in a version of the painting based upon the Surrealist art movement. Each Doom Patrol member battles their uh, opposing members of the Brotherhood of Dada, resulting in Rebus and Crazy Jane being captured, while Cliff's mechanical body is critically damaged. We end on a cliffhanger, pun intended, of Sleepwalker waking up, screaming, It's awake! The Buried Rider! The Fifth Horseman! Now, if you don't know, a little fact at home, that's how Mike wakes up in the middle of the night quite often. So, alright, Doom Patrol number 29, we're going to keep it rolling here. Cover dated January 1990, on the shelves November 28th, 1989. Again, same month as Justice League America number 34, and Justice League Europe number 9. This installment is called The Kingdom of No! Uh, That's what my daughter used to say all the time. So, this issue is narrated by the villain Frenzy. Now, as a young man, Frenzy never received much education, for which he blames his mother. Now, Frenzy sees himself as the king of the world inside the painting that ate Paris. Frenzy tells us the story of how the Brotherhood of Dada traveled deeper and deeper into the paintings within the paintings until they discovered the fifth horseman itself, the horseman of extinction and oblivion. And it's this Godzilla-sized armored warrior riding a skeletal flying horse. Yes, it's just as cool as it sounds. The villains (laughs) revive the Doom Patrol as they're worried they won't be able to handle this monster on their own. Now working together, Crazy Jane explains if the horseman gets out of the painting, it will mean the destruction of the Earth. The horseman absorbs power from the energy of each level of the painting. Now, Mr. Nobody declares that they should join hands and send their superpowered energies to Crazy Jane in, in hopes of helping her control the horse. Mr. Nobody realizes that if the horseman takes power from ideas converted into energy, then the best possible place to send it would be the nonsense world of Dadaism. Since Dada is about the antithesis of ideas, it destroys meaning, stripping away all sense and significance. If the horseman enters that world, he'll be torn apart. Meanwhile, in the desert where Paris once stood, numerous superheroes have gathered, including the Justice League of America, which I believe Richard Case believed included Superman, Wonder Woman, Starman, Phantom Lady, and the Phantom Stranger. Superman (laughs) examines the painting with his vision powers, and he sees a giant horse rushing toward them from inside the painting. Something bursts from the painting into our reality. But the Dada energy did the trick, and the horseman is reduced to a child's rocking horse. Now, still inside the painting, the Doom Patrol escape, but the Brotherhood of Dada stay behind inside the painting. Our heroes arrive in Paris, which is returned to its natural state, being vomited back into reality by the painting. The bad news, though, is it looks like Crazy Jane didn't make it out alive. Now, Frenzy believes that he and the Brotherhood of Dada escaped the painting, but in truth, they're still inside the painting, which has been returned to the vault of a collector of bizarre antiquities. Woof! Mike, so that is like drinking from a fire hose for those two issues, buddy. <laughs> so what did you think, man? I really, really enjoy this story because, okay, look, I don't mean any disrespect to the Justice League or or any of its other teams whatsoever. They don't really do a heck of a lot in this story. (laughs) Yeah, um, again, we're covering this because of the connection to the JLI. They're only peripherally in this, guys. In fact, why don't we knock out the JLI stuff real quick so we can just move past it. So, yeah. So, just to tell you the best bits here, and then we'll do the discussion. Like, Booster Gold declares this whole situation is way too weird for him. And then Animal Man... uh, bounces back, says, I've been living my life in the Twilight Zone, which is a reference to the fact that Grant Morrison also writes Animal Man. Booster says, uh, they're talking about craziness, and he goes, talking to nutcases, here comes the Doom Patrol. God. 
<laughs> then later, Booster <laughs> says the Badoon Patrol gives him the creeps. Booster's a dick. Um, mm, yeah. yeah. So, so and, and then Booster has a really rough encounter with Crazy Jane. Now, you know that the Doom Patrol and JLI are aware of each other in this world because the Doom Patrol, at this point, is actually leasing space from the JLI. Their headquarters is the secret sanctuary where the JLI keep their, their shuttle and Beetle's bug. And, and once in a while, JLI will even reference it. Like, if they're in the secret sanctuary, they're like, shh, don't be too loud. We don't want to bother our tenants, the Doom Patrol. That kind of stuff. <laughs> And then, uh, and then one of the funnier bits in this thing is because, you know, Animal Man is Graham Morrison's POV character in the Animal Man book. You know, with all the weirdness going on, buddy, you can relate to. And in Doom Patrol, it's Cliff. Here you get a chance where Grant gets to put his POV characters together, and Animal Man reaches out his hand to, to meet Robot Man. He says, oh, you must be Robot Man. And Cliff just blows right past him and says, and you must be the guy who states the obvious. <laughs> I absolutely love that bit. Cliff tends to not mess around with other people outside of the his team. Uh, but yeah, th- that's a great line. <laughs> I love that. I just think it's so perfect, too, again, because the characters represent the same sort of thing in each book. And yet, mm. you know, you, so you think, oh, they'll be besties. No, not even a little bit. No, no, not at all. No. So how crazy is it to think that at some point in history, both Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman, as we'll get to a same in, both Grant and Neil were relying on the Bwahaha JLI, the goofy comedy Justice League, they were relying on them for a sales bump. That is absolutely mm. insane. I mean, they even put Superman and Flash on the cover of issue 29. That yeah. just blows my mind. You know, the traumatic cover with Flash and, and Superman on 29, and Superman's holding Jane, it's kind of like, oh, the drama, oh my god. Uh, it's a little bit reminiscent of Crisis on Infinite Earths, where Superman is holding Supergirl on the cover of issue 7, but, you know, a, a lot less teary, because anyone outside of this corner of the DCU doesn't really know or care about Jane that much. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, it's very interesting to see that, you know, the, the big hands-on hips, legs of Kimbo, mainstream superheroes appearing <laughs> with the Doom Patrol. It's right. Just in, yeah. So uh, so what did you think about that? Again, well, let's finish up the JLI stuff so we can get into the rest of the nonsense. Uh, so what do you think about all the JLI side of it? I mean, to me, it sort of felt like, okay, he threw Superman in there, probably because Grant wanted to write Superman. But uh, as far as the rest of it goes, I mean, Booster's feels a little bit on point because he's being a jerk but the rest of it mm. they're, they're kind of barely there exactly yeah uh, but I, I get the logic for them being there because they've got the embassy there in Paris so that yeah. kind of makes sense but other than that yeah it, they they kind of have their very brief meeting and they kind of you know throw shade at the patrol and yet it's a patrol that saved the day thank you very much nah, you that's know, true that's Paris true back, you know so I did think it was interesting in the art and not in the dialogue but in the art we see Wonder Woman Starman Phantom Lady, Phantom Stranger, and I... I all of them are there. I mean, it, given the idea that, yeah, Paris just disappeared, it is big enough to attract a lot of heroes. That is a big issue. It's just mm-hmm. those characters don't have anything to do with the Justice League, at least in this incarnation, and they don't do anything or say anything. So, which makes me think Richard Case just slipped them in because he felt like drawing them, probably. I mean, who wouldn't <laughs> want to draw Phantom Lady, right? <laughs> She's hot. So <laughs> I've heard that rumor somewhere. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think Richard was just like, oh, who can I sneak in here and get away with it? And right. somehow he did. Yeah. Well, yeah. Starman is such a vague inclusion. It actually took me a while to figure out he was there because he's just like on the side of one panel. And I'm like, who's that dude? But then I realized that the way his <laughs> collar and hair are and the Phantom Lady's in there together because she was a regular in Starman at the time. I'm like, oh, I'm putting the pieces together. Okay, there we go. So really, mm, folks, yeah. that's about all the JLI kind of stuff. So let's dig into the rest of this, buddy. Obviously, you've talked about this issue before on Waiting for Doom. But coming out at it fresh. 
fresh. It's been a few years, probably, maybe. So what would you feel reading these two together? I still really enjoyed it. Yeah, we covered this on our show about five years ago, very early in our show history. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've literally not read them since that time. But I still really enjoyed it. I like that it's kind of an art lesson <laughs> as well. Yeah. It's taking us through each of the, the different, each different level and, and world within the painting that ate Paris is a, a different art style. So yeah, a, a, you listed them before. We've got futurism, surrealism, there's impressionism, symbolism. It, it's really cool. And yeah, it was just a really exciting way to show them traveling through the art itself. Uh, the traveling through different styles of art within this world within a world. I really like the point you, you made before about the, the infinity mirror type effect as they're looking into it. It's just all this craziness going on. It's one of my favorite stories and I hope people check it out if they haven't before, even though it's very weird. That's, that's the Doom Patrol. Well, uh, of all the Doom Patrol story, and, and maybe because this was my first story arc, right? Because I started with issue 26, which is part of this, the Paris, the, uh, the, the Painting the Eight Paris storyline. For me, I always felt like this was probably the most approachable story from the Doom Patrol. Like, it just gets weirder from here kind of thing. Like, strap in, kids. But uh, for me, uh, this one, I felt like I could grasp what was going on. I mean, there is a lot of weirdness here. But I want to talk about the art styles real quick. I absolutely love that part. And I love how the horseman, as he's absorbing energy from those dimensions, you know, he's, he's becoming more solid. The skeletal horse starts to become more full. But also, he changes his look. Like, I can't remember whether it's, I don't know, the Cubism era or the Futurist or Art Deco, whatever. He, he his look and sleekness matches the style of that genre of art, which is like, exactly. oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's one of the coolest things about it. It's like, yeah, he's drawing power from the level he's in, and it's affecting him as well. It's so cool. Richard Case did such a great job. Yeah. Oh, it must have been a blast for him, too, because he's getting to emulate all these different styles in one book. I mean, that's first of all, you got to have an amazing artist who can tackle that. Second of all, just to have mm-hmm. super fun with that. That is so cool. Yeah, so, exactly. So talking about the insanity here. All right, folks. So yeah, you've got this whole fifth horseman, which uh, of the of the apocalypse, essentially. You've got him absorbing energy from art. You've got Rebus, whose level of understanding is just bizarre and omniscient. Uh, the nonsense of Dadaism. All of it is so weird. And, and to some extent, it's really hard for us to comprehend. I had forgotten how trippy the series was. But there you have Cliff, right? <laughs> Cliff standing in the middle of this storm around him. And he's our viewpoint character because he's just kind of an everyman. Now, my yeah. question for you from that is, do you think that the way Cliff cuts through the crap and just tells it like it is to the reader and, and, and tell, you know, as again, our viewpoint makes sense of this nonsense. Do you think that's the way Grant Morrison thinks? Or do you think that's what Grant thinks other people thinks? I think Grant Morrison is a very intelligent person, mm-hmm. but I think the everyman quality about Grant might be just a small portion of his personality. <laughs> so- <laughs> and and I'm saying that with the utmost respect for him, and uh, I don't mean him any disrespect or disservice at all, but I think, yeah, there might be a little bit too much of the arty genius type compared to the everyman type. So I think it, it it's a little bit of both there, maybe. But that's that's a really good question. I've never <laughs> actually thought of it before. Because you're, you're exactly right, though. Cliff is the everyman. Cliff is the point of view character. Cliff is the average guy who cuts through the crap, pardon the expression, who just so happens to be in, you know, a really super strong, cool robot body. Right. And he fights all these weird atrocities around the world. Yeah, I think I think there's, there's got to be a portion of Grant there, but I, I think it's probably more what Grant has also had others say to him or things he's read or seen or encountered. I, I don't know how much of Cliff comes directly from Grant's thoughts himself. It's his friend down to the pub. <laughs> 
But yeah, it, probably. probably. And what even got me thinking down this train was the, was the Animal Man and, and Cliff meeting. Because I thought, oh, wait a minute. The similarity there. Again, the, 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 the guy who's grounded in, in the insanity. And that's what made me think about, mm. oh, maybe that's Grant. And then thought, no, nah, that's probably not Grant. But anyway. So <laughs> let, me, let me ask you, because we do a show called the Who's Who podcast, where we go through each issue of Who's Who. And whenever we get to a character from the Morris and Doom Patrol, I, we get a lot of feedback from people that say, I don't get this. You know, I tried it. It didn't make sense to me. It was too weird. Like, how would you advise somebody who has a hard time approaching the Morrison Doom Patrol? How do you come at it sideways so you don't scare the tiger or something? How, how do you convince them to give it a try and make them fall in love with it? Oh, jeez. I would probably say be prepared for the weirdness, but if it intrigues you, you might find yourself doing some research after the fact. Like, when I first read this story many years ago, I was like, what? I actually went and looked up the different art styles that were being talked about. I was like, that's really cool. It's incorporating real-world stuff into the, this comic book storyline. There's another storyline later on in the Doom Patrol where Mr. Nobody forms a new Brotherhood of Data, and they actually use a bicycle which was used by the inventor of LSD uh, and <laughs> that bicycle has sort of resonated, it has soaked in some of the LSD and is being used to power Mr. Nobody's political campaign uh, to become president of America and I again I did research and that was a real guy who took some drugs and rode his bicycle around, it was a real thing so <laughs> I think if you can accept you know, the weirdness of superheroes just going a little bit darker and I think sometimes if you do and I even did this with Rachel Pollack stuff there's the story arc of hers called the Tiresias Wars a lot of that was based off mythological stuff and like again I, I read that there were some weird bits I went away and did some research like holy cow that's actually based on stuff here in our real world Jack so I, I would think yeah if you want to embrace the weirdness but then if you go away and do a bit of digging after the fact you I think you'll appreciate it even more that the weirdness uh, is sometimes, you know, based in real world stuff, which makes it even more an intriguing read and an, and an enjoyable read. But yeah, I think, I think just accept the weirdness. Just roll with it, people. <laughs> Life's too short. Mike, you cannot possibly know how incredibly well you set me up for the next story. Unbelievably. You talk about reading this book, leading you to research. So I read issue 26 and 27, 20, you know, this, the, the painting The Eight Paris, which is all about Dadaism. So, by the way, here's yes. a little bit of research for you people at home. So Dadaism, and, and this is a little paraphrasing from Wikipedia, in case you're not familiar with it. It was an art movement in the early 20th century from the European avant-garde. And the Dada movement consisted of artists who reject logic or reason or the aesthetics of modern society. Instead, they were expressing nonsense and irrationality and, and were, it was, they were protest works, basically. And the artists were expressing their uh, discontent towards violence or war or nationalism. And uh, it was very far, far left in leaning. And I did all this research when I read these books. I was in high school at the time. And I was taking two particular classes. I did this research and did projects based on Dadaism because of this book. Oh, wow. I did one for my Excellent. philosophy. I know, right? So, I mean, <laughs> talk about doing real-life research right here, buddy. So I did yeah. a project in my philosophy class all about Dadaism. I researched the, the, the movement behind it, how I got started, their thoughts, and, and all that. Philosophy teacher ate it up. Then in art class, I did an art project on Dadaism. I mean, the Brotherhood of Dada like, affected my, my, my youth, my growing up. I mean, maybe 17 is the perfect... I said, you know, sometimes weirdness is for young, the young man. Maybe 17 is the perfect yes. age. I don't know. But, man, Dadaism really had a major impact on me because of this book. 
Yeah, that's that is so incredibly cool. I'm so proud of you, Shag. I really am. Well, be proud of the 17 year old me. 47 year old me is just a lazy dillweed. But um, <laughs> so uh, I got to talk about the Brotherhood of Dada for just a minute. Uh, the, the whole reinvention of the Brotherhood of Evil. Uh, these guys are fantastic. I love the origin of Mister Nobody in issue 26. Again, that was my first issue. I got Grant to sign it. I love it mm-hmm. so much. The quiz, though. Oh my gosh, the quiz. So the way the quiz works, guys. The quiz has every single superpower you have not thought of. So they can blast you, they can shoot you, they can do anything. But the minute you say flight, they fall to the ground. You say heat vision, they can't They can't do heat vision. You say teleportation, they stop teleporting. It is such a bizarre, clever thing. And uh, I, I just think that is an insanely wonderful idea that Grant came up with. I love that scene where the Quiz and Rebus are fighting, and Rebus is quickly trying to spout off every superpower they can think of. Yes. And they get the teleportation, and they're like, oh, hang on, did I already say that? Oh, no, no. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so I think cool. that may come up one more time in our conversation in just a minute, actually. But um, mm, okay. I can't believe I never, maybe I did notice this a million years ago, I never. I forgot about the Sleepwalker. She's got silhouettes over her eyes uh, of, of like yes. uh, people's faces. I, I never noticed that, or at least I didn't remember I noticed that till now. <laughs> yeah, she Sleepwalker becomes basically super strong and unstoppable once she's asleep, and she she goes on the attack when she is sleepwalking. And yeah, she's another insane supervillain. So, well, insane design and creation. She's, she's not actually insane. And she stays asleep by taking sleeping pills and listening to Barry Manilow, which is exactly. uh, which is unfair because my wife's a giant Barry Manilow fan, and I've taken her to see him in concert oh three times. I, oh dear. I, okay. I'll have I'll take that up next uh, with Grant next time I see him. So yeah, have have a word with him. Yeah. All right, folks. Now we are going to do something a little bit different. Normally, at this point in the show, we would do the Bwahaha Award. Well, folks, these comics are a little weird, if you hadn't noticed. They're not very Bwahaha. And the comics we're going to cover a little later are also a little bit different. So I've come up with a different award for this episode. And I call it the... One Punch Award. This is where we're going to nominate the most interesting, surprising, or enjoyable moment in the issues. Both myself and Mike will pick one moment, and it will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. And because we're going to say One Punch a Bunch, that was the last time you're going to hear the punching noise for a little while, guys, because I'm not doing this in editing that many freaking times. All right, Mike, so what is your nomination for the One Punch Award? I'm going to say the, the finale of the storyline, because it always makes me laugh, where the patrol of Outwitted, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse, and as he's racing towards the final level of the painting, what shoots out by a rocking horse and that always makes me laugh because it's just so ridiculous so that that's the one I'm giving the one punch award to that's a great pick that, that was actually very very close to being my final selection as well I went with something a little bit different but I'm 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 willing to, to, to barter here if we need to my pick was the battle between the quiz and Rebus the one you mentioned specifically oh, I, yes. I love that bit right. where he where Rebus is rattling stuff up and specifically my favorite bit is once they capture Rebus and he's, he's naming all these powers still and the quiz says says you forgot the power to create escape proof spirit jars and i just even back then i was like what but yeah i guess if you have unlimited power that you could do anything you want so uh that was my pick now with that said i am willing to uh bend because the conclusion is pretty darn amazing i don't know what do you think yeah yeah uh look uh, can we not share the award between them both you know it's I, i think they're both really good picks Aw, you're too kind. Sure, we'll do that. We'll split the difference, folks. The very first One Punch Award is going to go to both the uh, the Fifth Horseman, who comes out as a rocking horse, and the Quiz, who is clever by miles. So, congratulations to the Quiz and the Rocking Horse of Doom. Please enjoy your One Punch Award and wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the, hmm, punch we give you? No, that's not going to work, folks. I'll figure it out later, but congratulations. 
Now, Mike, I, I gotta ask a favor. I have been thinking a lot about redecorating the embassies, and I picked up this cool painting. Would you mind keeping an eye on okay. this painting while I'm gone for a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Just hand it over. Yep, um, sure, check. Wow, th this is some painting, man. Look at this details and, and the levels and, and wait, 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 Shag, I uh, Shag, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting dragged into the painting! Oh, oh gosh. Uh, well, Mike, I'm really sorry about that. Hopefully we'll get him back for the end of the show. Well, Mike's kind of maybe hanging out in the painting. Uh, I'm going to run a podcast promo break. Then I'm going to take a nap, sort of like Sleepwalker, and head over to The Dreaming to talk about Neil Gaiman's Sandman. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, that's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, th this makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, this is pure fantasy now. In 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, that, that's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, WaitingForDoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. We're back from break, and now we're going to take a sidestep into the dream dimension to talk about Neil Gaiman's Sandman number 5 with my co-host for this segment. Now, folks, this man has been writing into our network for years, regaling us with stories of his misspent childhood, arguing with his friends over comic books. And nowadays, he finds himself reading and rereading the Sandman comic series religiously. And in fact, this guy got ordained, giving himself an awesome supervillain name, Reverend Null. Makes him sound like a bad guy from DC Zero Hour. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Bradley Knoll. Welcome to the Dreaming, Bradley. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? Thank you for welcoming me. And, you know, we just wanted the multiverse back. That was really all Hal and I wanted. So, I'm, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> it started with a simple discussion and things just got out of hand. <laughs> Spoiler for Zero Hour Strikes, folks. Sorry about that. <laughs> to be fair, it's it a 25-year-old comic. They should have read it by now. So this is pretty exciting. I mean, Sandman, you know, normally we're here talking about like funny books right but we're talking about literature here this is a very very exciting now, let me ask you what's your personal origin with neil gaiman's sandman comic how did you find it how'd you fall in love with it what kind of nightmares did it give you you know what was your connection to it okay the actual quick answer that i normally give people if they ask me how i discovered vertigo is that blue beetle introduced me to vertigo which <laughs> isn't true that's not true scott free introduced me to vertigo because i chased john and scott into sandman number five that's where i followed them from and Dr. Destiny was a Justice League villain as far as I was concerned. So I had this funny Justice League that was following a Justice League annual from when I was a young teen. And, you know, this was going to be a nice, lighthearted book. Looked like it was drawn a little darker. Yeah, and it scared me off of Sandman for a full year before I ended up reading the trades and coming back. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is where comics became literature for me personally. Before I read Sandman, I don't think I would have been brave enough to make that statement. I mean, I know Dark Knight Returns was around and Watchmen was around before this, but this is the series where I felt the most comfortable making that oh-so-pretentious argument, hey, this is literature. So there you go. <laughs> totally understand where you're coming from, because I, I found Sandman on issue number eight. So just a few months after this, I went into my comic book store and I don't know, I, I was 17. I was, you know, an angry youth. And I was like, I'm so tired of all these bright colored superheroes. I want some dark stuff. And I, you know, I actually asked the guy behind the counter. I said, can you recommend something to me that's, you know, like grown up comic? Those probably weren't my words, but you know, that was the gist of what I asked for. So he put in my hands, Sandman number eight. And I want to say he put in my hands an issue of Doom Patrol as well. I mean, it just changed my comic reading for years. I was all in on everything, you know, all the mature labels books by then. When Vertigo came out, I was completely in on all that. Yeah, for me, it was issue eight. And, and I, in fact, couldn't find the earlier issues because they were so scarce. So I was pretty far into, uh, I don't know, probably Season of Mists or, or something like that. I was going to say, I don't think I personally started picking up the comics until Brief Lives. Oh, really? I okay. was, and I bought the earlier trades before the Brief Lives was coming out. But I didn't actually buy Sandman in comic proper pamphlet comic book form until then. And actually, my collection of the comics themselves was practically non-existent. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I was a trade paperback guy when it came to that. Well, it kind of revolutionized DC's trade paperback program, too. It made them realize they could have one. So uh, I'm, I'm holding in my hands the, the first printing of Preludes and Nocturnes. I bought it when it came out. It says it was 91. So that means I, I started with issue 8, went forward for two years, then I finally read this issue, number 5 and number 6. To be honest, I was like, ugh! You know, I, I decided I like the later issues of Sandman. I don't like the early stuff. And so I haven't actually reread these very often, and so reading this, I, it almost felt fresh for me because it's been so long since I've read it. I have my original copy of Preludes in my hand as well, and that was the second Sandman comic that I buy, and I've been planning to kind of give a class in Sandman to a couple of people who I know, and uh, we were going to have a reading group sort of thing, and I am seriously considering skipping the Preludes entirely, because the entire thing is summed up in the beginning of 8. While reading Neil Gaiman right like he's Alan Moore is great for a few issues. It's a lot better once he starts writing like Neil Gaiman. That's very fair. Number eight's a great jumping on board and going forward from there. Yeah. Like I said, I'm introducing this to people. I am hesitant to give them the first book. Yeah. Well, we should probably get into issue number five. Yeah, we should. All right. So Sandman number five from DC Comics, uh, cover dated May 1989. It was on the shelves March 28th, 1989. To give you some perspective, that's the same month that Justice League America number 26 and Justice League Europe number two were on the shelves. So that tells you kind of the place in history. Uh, cover price is $1.50 and the cover's by Dave McKean. And uh, the writers, Neil Gaiman, penciler is Sam Keith, inker is Malcolm Jones III, letter is Todd Klein, colorist is Robbie Bush, and editor is Karen Berger. Now here's a real quick recap with, a, be honest, a much heavier focus on the JLI side of this, because that's really where we want to kind of approach this from is the JLI side, because I mean, obviously Bradley and I could talk about Sandman for probably hours, but we, oh yeah, <laughs> but we're going to keep this kind of hopefully on point. So the issue itself is called Passengers, and here's the recap. Dr. Destiny, who's now horribly disfigured and desiccated, escapes the twisted halls of Arkham Asylum with a goal of recovering the magic ruby he used time and again to fight the Justice League of America. He carjacks a young woman and forces her at gunpoint to drive him to a small town near Gotham where he can sense his ruby. Meanwhile, Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, also seeks the ruby. Turns out that the ruby belongs to Morpheus and was taken from him years ago during his imprisonment. We find Morpheus at the Justice League International Embassy in New York. Morpheus is observing Mr. Miracle
miracles, nightmares of apocalypse, granny goodness, the Armageddon, and Scott's anxiety over not knowing his real name because the name Scott Free was actually assigned to him as a joke by granny goodness. Then Mr. Miracle awakes and tries to help Morpheus locate Dr. Destiny's old ruby. They ask Martian Manhunter, who doesn't actually see Sandman the way we see him. He sees Morpheus as the Martian god of dreaming, a giant burning skull named Lord Elzoral. Martian Manhunter then directs the Lord of Dreams to a warehouse where the old JLA trophies are stored. Morpheus thanks them both and shares words of encouragement, which essentially sort of translate into sweet dreams if you read them carefully. Then at the warehouse, Morpheus recovers his ruby, but unfortunately over the years, Dr. Destiny has corrupted the jewel, and Morpheus is overwhelmed by the dark forces within. Then Dr. Destiny arrives, takes the gem, leaving Morpheus unconscious on the floor, and then Dr. Destiny makes his way to a nearby diner. And from that point, he goes into our nightmares from issue number six. Ah! Such beautifully rendered nightmares. But yes, yes, horrible. (laughs) Bradley and I talked off air about issue number six. Oh my gosh, there's theses to write about the horror in issue number six. We're not going to do that here. I could possibly do a three-hour one-man show. (laughs) So our recommendation is go read number six, but do it with all the lights on in the house. (laughs) Yeah, lights might help. (laughs) So let me ask you, focusing on the GLI for a second, because we probably have a lot to say about the comic in general. Do you feel that the JLI, how were they handled on this issue? Do you feel it was faithful? What do you think? I have thought since I read this issue for the first time that it was an excellent example of both John and Scott from the way they appear in the Justice League. It had just become America, so JLA. Mm -hmm. I've always felt that that is a remarkably good feel for the way that they were at the time. It feels like a mundane office. I mean, maybe not comedy, Um, (laughs) but but it feels like it kind of a mundane office moment. You have Jean just casually noticing a powerful god of dreams like it's no big deal. I've always thought it was, particularly for the way they were at the time, an excellent example of that. Dr. Destiny's a little different on that. He's going through some serious changes. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> but they are spot on. Um, in preparation for this podcast, I have reread Scott's dream of more often than anything else in this issue, and it's so cool. <laughs> it really is. I, in fact, I was going to say, there's a website called Crisis on Earth Sandman, and I want to give them credit because this is their words, not mine. They wrote this, I thought was interesting. They said, Gaiman probably chose to use Scott Free and Sandman in order to show his dreams of trying to escape an implacable destiny, a theme that resonates strongly with Sandman as a whole, which I thought was like, wow, that's so insightful. I didn't even think about the parallels of Scott being forced into this destiny, and so is Sandman. Yeah. You know, seriously, because I tend to rush this issue for other reasons, that had not occurred to me. Um, Yeah, that is spot on. <laughs> yeah, it's really impressive. Yeah, I wish I'd written that. <laughs> you reference Martian Manhunter seeing the dream skull, you know, the Martian god uh, Zorlil or whatever it was. So I got a question for you. Is this the first time that Morpheus ever appears, like, to a non-human in a different form? Because I know later we see him as cat, we see him as all kinds of stuff. But is um, this the first time he's been in non, you know, goth, if you will? Um, flipping through it really quick, he appears as a cat Oh, okay. In once in the first issue. Okay. And other than that, yeah, it looks like it's gothy dream through the rest of that. Okay. This would be the first time it was that major. And the cat was more of a, at that point in time, which was more something he was taking to freak out his captors then. Gotcha. So, okay. So I think this is the first time that it's been made official that different people perceive dream in different ways, which is part of what led to my weird confusion the first time I read this, because 
of the way he appeared differently. And um, I thought that this Sandman was the same Sandman who, who appeared in that Justice League annual where I had last seen Dr. Destiny, but that he just had a new power set that included being scary and appearing differently to different people. Ah, um, okay, sure. I mean, like, I know how wrong that is now. That was my impression at the time. This is a strange issue for me to think about because this and the next issue, I mean, what if I'd actually not come back to Sandman? Right, yeah. Like that would have been a very different me. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is the first time that we see Morpheus take a form like that. It's also one of the few times where somebody refers to one of the Endless as a god, and that always bothers me. Hmm. Because I'm very much into the neither man nor god dramatic part of all of that. Gotcha, okay. But rereading this when John says a very old god to a new god, I laugh every time. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah. Well, I, I like that because that's the same moment they uh, they go off to have Oreos. Yeah, I was going to say that's also the Oreo moment. Very it's, good in keeping. Yeah, probably that is the most JLI page yeah. in this entire issue. Well, there's, And there's some good bits, too. Like earlier, uh, Scott says when he, he wakes up and Sandman's sitting at the foot of his bed, which would freak out anybody. He says, is this kind of thing going to happen every time I stay here overnight? Don't answer that. <laughs> which is, it's a very J.M. DiMatteis kind of a JLI line. So I thought that was really effectively done on Gaiman's part. I like that. Yeah. Also, something else I didn't pick up on, and I got this from doing a little bit of research, is at no point do they actually say the names Mr. Miracle or Martian Manhunter in the issue. It's Scott Free, and then I don't think they even call Martian Manhunter by name. They just indicate he is a Martian. I think Morpheus refers to him as the last Martian. Yeah, yeah. So you said you've been studying Scott's dream. So here's something interesting. You know, throughout that whole thing, Scott's nightmare basically is, you know, it's about escaping apocalypse, but also the, the crux of the dream is that he doesn't know his own real name. And they point out that that was a nickname that Granny Goodness gave him. Yeah, Granny Goodness gave him, which is, yeah, that's actually Kirby. <laughs> so does that mean High Father, when little Scott Free, whatever his name was, was born, and he gives Scott Free to Darkseid in the exchange, he hadn't even named the baby yet? Because that's messed up. Well, yeah, you're exchanging kids in the name of war. That's messed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a fair point. Fair point. One of the little things that I want to point out, first of all, is this does include the first appearance of my favorite cast of The Dreaming. There are a bunch of support characters that we meet along the way, and technically speaking, on page 18 is the first appearance of one of my favorite support characters, which is Merv Pumpkinhead. <gasps> I absolutely love him. He is in the middle of that page as Dream is transporting himself all about on those different and wondrous methods. Mind you, I think he was a throwaway doodle at this point in time, yeah, um, who probably. would come back later. Yeah, but Harley Quinn started that way, too. So... <laughs> I got super excited when I saw Merv as well. I'm like, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, I have a deep weakness for Pumpkinhead characters that goes back to um, the second Oz book. Oh, okay. I guess I'm going to have to fully tell, I think I've half told the story at this point in time, but I, I really feel the need to say that when I was 13, the Justice League of America had an annual that included, like I mentioned earlier, the Sandman who was a version that could, uh, a crazy Jack Kirby version that could come back 24 hours at a time, and who had by this point in time also been Hector Hall, mm -hmm. who is a character that I have a um, fascination for, if not a fandom for. Okay. Hector Hall's been a lot of different characters. Yes, um, yes. And he took over for the, a version of the Sandman that could only be in the real world for an hour at a time. And that version of the Sandman had fought Dr. Destiny with the Justice League back in 1983, with an annual, summer annual that I had. 
I remember it well because the annual in question had a continuity problem with the Justice Society Justice League team up at the time, which is the one where, where we learned that Black Canary's her own daughter. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Green Lantern is in that crossover, but John is replacing Hal in the annual. So Hal was back on Earth, but then wasn't again. Hmm. Um, and you can probably hear me fighting to choke my 13-year-old self down about how wrong that is, taking my little fist at the continuity glitches. So I had that in my head when I, at 20, picked up this Sandman issue and thought that Morpheus was that version of the Sandman and that, oh, well, Dr. Destiny is drawn a little weirder in this. Just a bit. Yeah. So the difference between that bright, just pre-crisis, George Perez-covered summer thing and this were mind-blowing. Like, I remember it strongly, and I am often amazed I found my way back to Sandman. It just goes to show how much I end up loving Neil Gaiman's work, that it didn't run me off forever. It was very, very strange. And like I said, especially with what goes on in the next issue with Dr. D, I mean, he's not the guy who fought Red Tornado. Um, <laughs> He's a completely different character by this point in time. Uh, that gunshot on page 22 where, where Dr. Destiny finally kills the woman who he has kidnapped <sighs> and that one punch where Batman takes out Guy Gardner were the same type of moment for me in my life. They were both these just sudden shocking changes to the status quo that was just amazing. I mean, it wasn't how, but Batman knocked out a Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't the friendly Justice League anymore. These, these guys are arguing with each other. You know, Dr. Destiny isn't this cute little sci-fi supervillain anymore. Oh no, he's into the realm of dark horror. And both of those were changes that were made with a single punch, or in that case, a single shot. This just single moment of change. And because they were so close to each other, they're within, what, a year of each other? Within a year and a half, yeah. So, you know, in comic book times, that's not a whole lot of comic book time. And so it was this really interesting time to be reading comics, because I'm an older guy as an adult and watching these just sudden and intense changes in the way comics were being written, particularly at the major company, DC now. And so there's this moments of sudden maturity that I have pictured as single comic book panels because, you know, those were comics maturing. And One Punch and That Gunshot are both that same type of sudden evolution, if you will, of comics. It's interesting. You make a very fair point about the resonance of both those moments. However, given the absolutely different emotions each one of those moments elicited in me, I never thought those two would be compared. So, fair, but shocking. (laughs) Yeah, I do that. I compare emotional levels rather than what the emotions are sometimes. Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. That's my spooky side, I guess. (laughs) So, amazing issue. Incredibly interesting from the JLI perspective. Great comic. Amazing lead up to issue number six. Wow. It's really interesting for me to go back and re-explore these early Sandman issues. Again, because for me, you know, Sandman's issue eight forwards rather than these early ones. So, I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to do this and i'm glad you've been with me here bradley thank you well it's been a lot of fun it really has and now folks it's time for the one punch award 
where we nominate the most interesting, surprising, or enjoyable moment in the issue. Really anything we feel like a standout moment. Both myself and Bradley are going to pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. So Bradley, you're the guest, so what is your nomination for the One Punch Award? Okay, there is a two-page spread on pages 20 and 21 that tells an absolute complete story of Morpheus losing his gem. And it is probably two of my favorite pages in comics ever, and it is a complete story without the rest of the book. So that is my One Punch Award. Interesting. And there's only two words in the whole page, at last. That's it. Yeah. Huh, you're right. And he couldn't even got by without even that. I mean, the whole story, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Okay. In fact, those two words, I had scanned past them as I was looking at them this time. I know they're there. I've read this before. But um, they don't need to be there. They're almost invisible as it is. Well, my pick was uh, when Martian Manhunter sees Morpheus, but he sees him as Lord Lazorl. And I just thought that moment had such an impact where, you know, it's the giant flaming skull and we know about the Martian fear of fire and how Martian Manhunter reacts to him. I mean, he says, Lord Zorl, I greet you humbly. May you guard us in the darkness and on the pathway between waking hours. Protect us in the dreams from the flame of your wrath. I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, so much mythology was built in just one panel about Martian dreaming that I thought was great and seeing Morpheus that way. So that was my pick. However, with all that said, I could totally be persuaded to go to your two pages because that is not easy to tell a complete story with no dialogue. That said, also, though, the only reason why your choice was a tie for me and the main reason why I avoided it was because I don't know how to pronounce Zorel, whatever that is. Clearly, I don't Despite having read it a bajillion, (laughs) yeah. Um, So I could go either way. And this is a JLI podcast. So I hate to talk against my own suggestion. And that is a beautiful set of two pages. But I think I might give you yours. because Well, you're the guest. I'm going to let you pick. Because you're right. That is a whole lot of mythology for a single panel. Yeah. No, I'm going to give that a slight heads up over mine just because I almost suggested it anyways. All right. (laughs) Well, I will take the win. So congratulations, Martian Manhunter and Lord Lazorl. You have won the coveted One Punch Award. So uh, please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for your characters. It is as tangible as Dream himself. There we go. That's the that's what I was looking for. I like that. That's good. Thank you, sir. I was I was struggling. <laughs> All right. Well, Bradley, I need to ask you a favor. I need to uh-huh. go ahead and go on to cover the next set of Vertigo esque books, if you don't mind. But could you do me a favor and stay here and, and wait for me? I shouldn't be gone too long. Uh, in fact, you can hang out over here at that diner. Oh, and, and would you hang out at this red ruby for me while you wait? Oh, uh, sure, sure. I'll just um, hang on to this. Uh, that guy in the corner is staring at me, though. Um, is that going to be okay? <laughs> what you do with that ruby, as we said, you could write a whole three-hour thesis on this thing, so I don't even want to know what you're thinking about doing to that guy in the corner. <laughs> don't worry, Bradley. We'll bring you back at the end of the show. And right now, we're going to go to a podcast promo break, and when we come back, I'm going to take the teleporters over to San Diego to talk about Animal Man! My name is Jesse, a Trekkie. A radiation wave hit and I got shot through a wormhole. And now I'm on some distant corner of the galaxy on a podcast, an index show about a strange science fiction series. Help me, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm co-hosting with an insane Farscape fan. I'm doing everything I can. I'm just looking for a way home. What the Frell, a Farscape podcast. Available only on Council of Geeks Podcast Network. Yeah. 
We're back from break, and now we're here in San Diego, and we are going to talk about Grant Morrison's Animal Man, Animal Man, specifically issues number 9 and 16. Now, I brought along another co-host, folks, and this gentleman, and I use the term loosely, uh, is a returning guest to the JLI podcast. He comes all the way from our Scottish embassy. Now, he's been a comics blogger, and he's a geek fitness enthusiast. Seriously, folks, this guy has a crazy obsession with handstands, and if you're part of the Fire and Water Geek Fitness Group, you, you know what I'm talking about. Seriously, guys, this guy has spent more time upside down than our Australian co-host. Folks, please help me welcome back to the embassy, Mr. Matt Ev. Welcome to San Diego, Matt. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? I'm grand, thanks. Thanks for having me, Shag. Nice to be back. Are you doing a handstand right now? Not right now, Shag. Because no one can see me, I am actually naked and it would be, uh, yes, very inappropriate. <laughs> Things would be dangling upside down. That's fine. Okay. I exactly. do imagine there's probably some yoga involved, though, knowing you. Absolutely. I'm currently in the lotus position. <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. So, Matt, I'm excited to have you back. We had a wonderful conversation about Justice League Europe last time. You're kind of my go-to guy on Animal, Animal Man. Man. So I knew if I was going to be talking about this amazing work of this character that I had to bring you back. So can you tell for the folks at home, what is your personal origin story with Animal Man? How did you find the book? How did you fall? I mean, you talked a little bit about it last time, but how did you fall in love with this specific book? Not just him in Justice League Europe, but in the Grant Morrison run. Well, uh, as I think I mentioned last time, yes, I used to be a fully Marvel kid. 100%. No DC whatsoever. But then the early 90s happened and early 90s Marvel happened. Um, <laughs> basically, Claremont left the X-Men and that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. So I almost stopped buying comics entirely until I stumbled across issues three and four of Justice League and then leapt across the chasm to DC. When I was buying Marvel comics, I'd seen Animal Man on the shelves and those Bolland covers always leapt out at me and sort of creeped me out a little bit. But I never picked them up because they were DC, obviously, and you know, who would do that? <laughs> Um, so I think the first time I ever read a comic with Animal Man in was JLE number one. Mm. So I started exploring back issue bins as part of the Justice League obsession, and that's where I found him. So that led me to start picking up his solo books, and I, I really loved it. It's just a weird, strange book. It has its own feel going on. It's sort of set aside from the DC Universe a bit, apart from the uh, elements we'll see coming in today. And yeah, Grant Morrison turned a lot of tropes on their head. And at the time I was getting them, he was also writing JLA. Uh, which is one of my favourite runs of all time. Um, so I was getting sort of his early work and his new work, and it just turned me into a massive Morrison fan. Yeah, so one of the things I really liked about Animal Man is I've always liked sort of uh, the fringe second stringers who aren't that powerful, who don't do much, who are sort of not the focus. And uh, Animal Man in JLE was definitely that, and his own book emphasised that aspect of his character as well, that he's not a sort of forefront superhero, and he wasn't positioned as one. I built a podcast network off the back of Aquaman and Firestorm, so I can't understand anything about liking a second string character. Yeah, you know, you might know a bit about what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, Buddy is an everyman. He's kind of hapless and underpowered and out of his element and overwhelmed and trying to do his best. And uh, I relate to that. Mm. Um, another thing that's great about Animal Man is uh, he has a really unusual costume that's really dorky, for want of a better word. <laughs> Um, it's a ridiculous orange leotard with a blue leather jacket and goggles. And yes, he looks ridiculous. But somehow Brian Bolland makes him look cool. And he really does. <laughs> on every cover, you just think, wow, this guy's amazing. And then uh, you see him in any other context. It's like, no, I think not. It's like <laughs> a lot of those George Perez costumes that only George Perez can draw. Yes! 
Absolutely. And other aspects of Animal Man are summed up by Jean Johns in these one of these issues we're about to talk about. But uh, yes, we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, these are great ones to cover too, especially not just because of the JLI aspect, but you're right. Sh- showing him in contrast to the rest of the DC Universe helps to highlight some of the things that make me love Buddy. It really does. Um, for me, and I think I've talked about this before, but I, I really hadn't read any Animal Man comics. I think I knew him probably from Who's Who or something, you know, was one of those, or Forgotten Heroes or whatever. Mm-hmm. He was just some background character I didn't really know much about. And then... And Justice League Europe comes out, and I bought that. And I was like, wow, okay, you know, I want to learn more about all these characters. So I ran out and bought, you know, some more Flash issues and some Captain Atom issues. And I bought issue number nine of Animal Man, because I'm like, okay, this one ties in with the Justice League. This is perfect. I'll read this one. Absolutely loved it. Uh, and then picked up Secret Origins right after that. And I jumped in with both feet, bought all the back issues. Absolutely fell in love with Animal Man. Fell in love with Buddy. I mean, really, that's what I did. I fell in love with Buddy. I fell in love with his family. Uh, the whole Morrison run was amazing. I got to meet Grant Morrison not too long after it finished. And I got him to sign it. And I was like, oh my god, it's absolutely amazing! You know, <laughs> uh, I even wrote a letter to uh, Suicide Squad when they when they brought Grant Morrison into Suicide. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They brought Grant Morrison, oh, yeah, uh, the writer. Yeah, I, I wrote a nasty letter to Suicide Squad saying that like, you shouldn't be doing this. Blah blah blah. And they actually printed the letter. <laughs> so yeah, I, I totally fanboyed over this, and I stuck with the book really long. I mean, I, I think I was with it until almost right before it got canceled the first time around. Mm. For me, it, it it didn't feel like Animal Man or it didn't feel like Buddy anymore. Yeah, things got very vertigo towards the end and very incomprehensible. Yeah, once he was like a living bird avatar or something, I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't feel like I was connecting with it anymore. But either way, and I'm doing exactly what I told Matt before we started recording that we can't do, which is tangent away, because we'll talk forever because this series gets us both so excited. So I'm going to drag us back, uh, drag myself back, and we're going to get into this, folks. We're going to talk about Animal Man, Animal Man, number nine and number 16. So here's the creative team, folks. You got uh, writer Grant Morrison, inker is Doug Hazelwood, letter is John Costanza, colorist is Tatiana Wood, editor is Karen Berger, and the covers are by Brian Boland. Now, the penciler, you do get a different penciler in issue nine. It's Tom Grummet, the amazing Tom Grummet. And number 16, the penciler is series regular Chaz Truog. So I'm going to go through the recap here so we can get into the discussion. So I'm going to go through it pretty quick. So Animal Man number nine, cover date was March 1989. It was on the shelves. January 31st, 1989, which is the same month as Justice League International number 24. So you get JLI 24, where they announce Justice League Europe, you see Buddy's going to join the team, and then this issue's on the shelf the same month with Martian Manhunter on the cover. Perfect timing. Really well done. All right, issue number nine's title is Home Improvements. Now, Buddy is playing with a family cat, ignoring his daughter Maxine and ignoring his wife's shouts about the knocking at the front door. Buddy's wife Ellen gets increasingly frustrated and she storms over to open the door herself, paintbrush in hand, and she is surprised to see standing there the Martian Manhunter. Now, the Manhunter is there to present some of the benefits of Buddy's membership in the Justice League Europe. This includes repairing the damage to their house caused by the Mirror Master in the previous issue and installing a state-of-the-art security system. Now, Buddy is thrilled. He's super excited about this. And then Ellen pushes him into telling Martian Manhunter that his powers are malfunctioning. It turns out Buddy's powers have gone haywire since the alien invasion detonated the gene bomb, and he can't really connect with the animals he intends to, and instead he's overwhelmed by this like tidal wave of senses from other animals. Now, despite Buddy's condition, Martian Manhunter explains that he still wants Animal Man on the Justice League team, because he feels that Buddy fights for the life of the planet. You know, all the environmental issues he stands for, uh, his stance against animal exploitation, you know, things like that. 
And Manhunter recommends a doctor who's been helping other heroes whose powers have been affected by the gene bomb. Uh, and then from there, they return on home. Meanwhile, back at the house, Ellen insists that the repairmen install non-lethal defense systems. And then this leads to some uh, discussion, which, which is truly foreshadowing, about the dangers of Animal Man's lack of a secret identity and having a family. Then there's a subplot running through the issue about Buddy's son, Cliff. Uh, he's being bullied. Uh, Cliff comes home very, very angry. And he explains that he's been bullied and another kid stole his bicycle. The Martian Manhunter has a plan to get the bike back. Jean shape changes to look like Cliff and then transforms into a monster, scaring away the bullies. And then there's some other Morrison uh, subplots brewing in the background here. There's a man named James Highwater who's suffering from an existential crisis, uh, quite literally. Uh, there's a mysterious man watching Cliff and muttering the boy's name. And finally, somewhere in Africa, a shaman warns that the gods are coming. All right, now we're going to jump into issue 16, recap real quick, and we're going to have all of our discussion here at the end. Again, published by DC Comics, cover date is October 1989. It was uh, Issue 16 was on the shelves on August 29th, 1989, which is the same month as Justice League America, number 31, and Justice League Europe, number 6. So halfway through Buddy's time on the JLE. And this issue is called The Clockwork Crimes of the Time Commander. I love that name. So in the issue, Buddy's wife Ellen receives a letter sharing the happy news that her book is going to be published. But he insists that they celebrate with a quick trip to Paris via the Justice League teleporters. Elsewhere, all the clocks in Paris have stopped at exactly 11.55 a.m. Meanwhile, this strange man who's obsessed with time is slowly remembering his true identity, eventually donning his costume as the Time Commander. Now, back at the Justice League Europe Embassy, Ellen finally meets Buddy's teammates. She meets Metamorpho, Rocket Red, and the Elongated Man. And later, Buddy and Ellen walk along the riverfront, and they reflect upon their unusual lives, and she reassures him that she doesn't mind the weirdness of being married to a superhero. However, Moments later, they're faced with a rampaging dinosaur, because, you know, that happens. Uh, but he uses his powers to punch the dinosaur unconscious, and then the Justice League Europe arrives, claiming that time has gone crazy, and tells him about all the clock stopping. Elongated Man suspects the former Green Lantern foe, the Time Commander. Uh, in a nearby cemetery, the Time Commander. He's wreaking havoc with time. He's bringing people back to life to sort of help the people that are in the cemetery that are mourning the people they've lost. And then the Time Commander. I really got to stop saying that. So the Time Commander, he, uh, he actually sees himself on the ground, unconscious, with a broken nose from 10 minutes in the future. So that's how crazy time is. So Justice League Europe arrives, and then they end up fighting, because of course they do. But Animal Man, he tries to reason with the Time Commander. But despite Buddy's warnings, Metamorpho comes running in and punches the Time Commander in the face, breaking his nose and knocking him out. And uh, really, you know, fulfilling that future the Time Commander saw. Buddy seems very disappointed that the situation was solved with violence and dejectedly walks away. Later, we see Buddy and Ellen having a romantic dinner together in Paris, and they are celebrating her impending book publication. And while they seem very happy that everything is going great, just outside, someone is watching them. Woof! All right. So that was a lot. So that was issue 9 and issue 16. Let me hear it, Matt. Tell me your thoughts. What do you think about the issue? Or issues? Well, they're both great, obviously. They're both uh, Grant Morrison Animal Man books, so that kind of goes without saying. Um, <laughs> nine in particular is one of my favourites of the entire run. I think that's a, a beautiful, sort of concise, well-done issue. 16 is fun, gets into a lot of sort of Silver Age strangeness and craziness. Yeah, that's more of a, a romp with some weirdness creeping in. Mm, okay. It seems like, we'll get to it, but it seems like Morrison is setting up this sort of division between Buddy and the JLE at that point. I would agree. Yeah, he's, he's definitely starting to see some uh, ideological issues there. Ideological and conceptual. It's like they're almost in two separate universes that are clashing together. That brings me to something I wanted to say about these issues. To me, 
the way these issues read, I feel like issue number nine reads like a Justice League International comic that happens to feature Animal Man. It, it, that's how that one reads to me, the one with the security system and all that stuff and the goofiness there. Whereas when you get to number 16, it really feels like you're reading an Animal Man comic that happens to feature the Justice League. So it's sort of the reverse. I really feel like number nine, Graham Morrison was trying to you know write something that would appeal to Justice League International fans. And I think it does. I think it's got a lot of the humor. It's got the quirkiness. It's got the snappy dialogue and fun banter. Whereas the other one feels very Animal Man to me. Maybe, I don't know if you agree or not. I would say it's more that, for me at least, nine is Animal Man and Justice League working together. There's quite a nice harmony between the two. Whereas in 16, they're at odds. Hmm. In a lot, a lot of ways, they're more faithful to themselves, but not working well together, hmm. deliberately as well. So one is harmony and one is dissonance. Okay. Well, why don't, why don't we start off talking about the covers? Well, nine is a fantastic cover. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Brian Bolland, so it goes without saying. Why don't you describe for the people at home? Because I, I didn't bother to describe the covers. So the front cover of issue nine, we have Buddy at the door of his house with the Martian Manhunter looming behind two workmen who are bringing various technological doohickeys. <laughs> the two workmen and John have a uh, sort of wry smile on their face. Mm-hmm. And Animal Man is looking directly at the camera, mugging for comic effect. Very much so. And of course, it's, as you said, it's ballin', so it's freaking gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. It is. And you can just see the sort of uh, wreckage of the house around them, which is, I believe, from the, uh, the Mirror Master fight in the previous issue. Correct. Yeah, the two workmen, I was thinking these were references to some kind of American pop culture. You were thinking Laurel and Hardy, I believe, but... Well, I agreed with you that they feel like they look like someone. So I went ahead and Googled some. Uh, I started with Laurel and Hardy because that's just where my gut went to. And sure enough, I, f- I came across a photo, a famous photo of Laurel and Hardy. And if you look at the faces of Laurel in the photo and Hardy, I'll be darned. I mean, they line up almost perfectly. There's, there's small changes. Mm-hmm. They look more world weary on the Ballin cover, but th- it lines up pretty darn well. So I feel like Ballin was looking at this picture of Laurel and Hardy as he drew this cover. I think, you know, there's no mustache and stuff like that, obviously, but there's a, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, I think you may be on something. If, if anything, there's certainly that sort of archetype of the double act. Yeah. One is tall and thin and one is short and not so thin. Yep. Um, so maybe it's a sort of Laurel and Hardy crossed with Abbott and Costello and that sort of thing. But interestingly, the two workmen in the issue are nothing like that at all. They just look like two generic comic book men. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's fair. <laughs> So why don't we go ahead and keep going through issue nine, since this is where we started. Sure. So inside, we start with various scenes of domestic life, where Buddy is playing with a kitten. And there's a particular panel here where Maxine has an exasperated expression with him, which uh, will be familiar to all dads of daughters. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) And then there's that bit where Ellen answers the door and John strolls through and she looks somewhat alarmed by a seven foot Martian at the doorstep, which is the, uh, the world of the superheroic coming into the ordinary and suburban. Well, also, like, he says, may I come in? And he's already got a foot in the house. (laughs) It's like, wow, John, that's a little presumptive. (laughs) Like she's going to refuse, I mean. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, you know, Grummet really draws John, because, uh, uh, by the way, this is the issue that's drawn by Tom Grummet. Uh, now, this is the same inker that we normally get, Doug Hazelwood, but he draws John really, um, fairly skinny. Like, if you look at yeah. the cover, Ballin's got uh, John larger than life, but inside, you know, he's, he's a pretty tiny dude, or thin dude, I should say, you know? Hmm. All right, I'm just going to put this out on the table, all right? Because, uh, you guys, you know my name is Irredeemable, okay? It's out there. I advertise it. So, what I'm about to say should not come as a shock to you people. Um, until this issue, when Grummet drew it, I didn't realize Ellen's pretty smoking hot. Because um, <laughs> normally Troog draws her with like a really tight perm and just, you know, he's a very cartoony style. But Grummet's, he's got a certain style. And I'm like, okay, well done, uh, buddy. Now, you know, you're lucky guy. So You're looking at the tight lemon jeans there, aren't you, basically? I'm not going to the specifics. I'm not that kind of man. 
I'm just saying yeah. Ellen's hot. <laughs> she's wearing a ripped half shirt, by the way, while she's painting. So I'm just saying Buddy's a lucky guy. That's all. Anyway. John welcomes into JLI and we get a little insight into the behind the scenes of how JLI works. They send out people to equip security equipment. They pay for repairs if anything is damaged. So it's a little bureaucratic insight, which is quite nice there. Oh, it's great. I mean, the the job benefits. I mean, I, you know, I like dental and health insurance, but dude, like security systems and you know, it's funny. They, I in my head, I thought they installed the teleporter here too. But in reading it for the podcast, because when you read any, by the way, folks, anytime you read a comic for a podcast, it usually destroys your love of that issue because you spend so much time analyzing every little thing. And I walked into this. I even in the recap, I wrote they installed the teleporter, and then I went back and reread. I'm like, they never reference it once. That was interesting. Although it is there in the next. Next issue, so yeah, he obviously did at some point. Must just be left on the truck at this point, right? <laughs> They'll get to it. You know, workmen are slow. So. <laughs> Ouch! They're sitting there drinking beer. That's the problem. They're on the stairs drinking the beer instead of working. That's one of my favorite moments is when they're drinking the beer and she like looks at her watch, clearly, you know, just frustrated with their <laughs> I- <Yeah>. idle hands. <laughs> yes, why did I offer them this beer? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yes, in the course of explaining the services the JLI provides, John accidentally gives away Batman's identity. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> he says the service is free, of course. We realize that not everyone is a millionaire playboy. Hmm. Who's the most famous millionaire playboy in, uh, <laughs> right. in America at the time? He could have been talking about Ted Cord, although by this point, Ted Cord, I think, was bankrupt, but still. <laughs> Ted really a playboy? I don't know. He liked to think yeah. he was. <laughs> he aspires to be one, yeah. There you go, right. So yeah, there's a beautiful little sequence where John and Buddy fly off into the sky to discuss his problems with his powers, and they're there in one panel. John says, shall we go? And then the next panel is just a whoosh as they disappear, and this, this tricycle left behind, a garden path. It's, again, it's the suburban and the superheroic coming together i just love those two panels i don't know what it is but they have a very uh everyday fantastical air to them they really do and i hadn't thought about it till your notes and uh, and i see it now too you're right the tricycle really is what helps sells it it is always weird for me to see buddy use his powers because to me buddy is a regular guy so when i see him do something fantastical like flying it's like i know he can do it obviously i've read lots of these comics but still it's always like wow that's really cool, dude. You just you feel that a conflict of suburbia and and fantastical, using your word, because because Buddy is just such a regular guy and he's doing these amazing things. So it just uh, yeah, it's a beautiful set of panels, and I I didn't feel it until you mentioned it. And now I can't unsee it, especially because he's out of costume here as well, mm-hmm. just in a polo shirt and jeans. And- yeah, good point. <laughs> they fly off to a nearby desert mesa, I guess that is, where John talks about why he wants Buddy in the league, and this is my favorite part of the book he sums up a big part of animal man's appeal he stands for environmentalism animal rights this global perspective and this also says a lot about jean as well and jean is my all-time favorite character in all of comics Hmm. he's a a peaceful philosophical compassionate guy and i like that about him and he like buddy's a vegetarian which we find out in justice league later so yeah and jean also has a a slight little dig at superman here when he says uh, i think we need someone like you who's fighting for the life of the planet not simply for personal glory or the American way. Well, I think it's a dig against Booster Gold, too. Right, right. Although the, the American way is obviously associated with Superman as kind of part of his fundamental... Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, his three core values, I suppose. I, I see Grant Morrison in this because you kind of see why an alien and a Scotsman would both... Neither of those would be particularly aligned with American values necessarily. Mm, that's a good um, point. Good observation. Grant Morrison famously grew up near the uh, nuclear submarine base in Scotland, where he's kind of on the front line of the Cold War between American values and the Soviet way. He feels himself apart from that as well. 
And I know how he feels about Superman being sort of the archetype of the superhero. So presumably there are conflicting feelings about that being tied up with a particular country too. It's complicated things going on there. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Jean, Jean has a line in here, and it's not it, not as deep and, and meaningful as what you said, but I, I really like where Buddy's, you know, his powers are out of whack and he can't use them properly. And Martian Manhunter uh, says, I won't lie to you, Animal Man. The Justice League can't afford to carry passengers. And I, I just, it's a simple line, but I really liked it because it, it does make sense. The Justice League are supposed to be the best of the best. And I just like, think that's a nice way to put it. Um, and it's also, you know, it's a little bit like your boss threatening you to get your act together. Kind of same th- yeah. same sort of thing. So I I thought it was an eff- I don't know that line just really uh, haunted me, but just kind of stuck out in my mind. But it's interesting as well because the Justice League at that time is kind of the joke Bohaha League, yeah, and aren't really considered very effective or taken very seriously. But clearly, Jean being at the head of it still sees them in that way that he he wants them to be the best of the best. Yeah, I think he still views and, them yeah. as you know the premier superhero team. Yeah. Yes, yes. Even though the world may not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm realizing as I look at this, because he called him Animal Man. Does he actually call him Buddy at any point? He, he doesn't. No, he never does. How interesting. He only calls him Animal Man, which is so strange because the rest of the world only calls him Buddy. So that sort of sticks with this thing I've been noticing lately where everyone who's on the Justice League America team uses the superhero names back and forth. Mm. And everyone in the Justice League Europe team uses their secret identities back and forth. Hmm. That sort of uh, reinforces that a little bit. Plus, Sean's a very formal guy, so... True, very true. So we then come to a scene of uh, Jean and Buddy, where Buddy is demonstrating what happens when he tries to use his powers. He tries to get the powers of a rabbit, mm-hmm. and instead he gets a rattlesnake, scorpion, kit fox, buzzard, ants, German shepherd, catfish, termite, and yes, his powers are all scrambled, he can't do anything. Which is a beautifully rendered scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of chaos and pain, and then he throws up everywhere. <laughs> right. This isn't the kind of situation you normally see superheroes in, you know? The vulnerable position of not being able to control what makes them so special. And again, I, I think it comes back to some of Buddy's normal guyness that just makes you feel for him. Absolutely, yeah. He's, he's just there struggling with this problem and uh, there's a Martian trying to help him. And he suggests seeing a doctor, which I'm not sure who that is. That's right. But John does recommend a doctor. So I, I thought about this and I did some research too, just trying to figure out what doctor they could be. You know, the big one that keeps coming up in reference to invasion, because that's what John's talking about. Is there's a doctor who's helping people after the gene bomb. Dr. Megala, his name keeps coming up. I don't see... Sean recommending him? He was from Captain Atom, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think this might be is is more a Grant Morrison thing, uh, alluding to a doctor that treated maybe Crazy Jane, because there's a lot of talk about how after the gene bomb, that created a lot of problems for Crazy Jane, and that's how uh, mm. her character evolved. And, she, the, and they do reference in her history that she saw a bunch of doctors. And so I wonder if maybe that's what he's hinting at is something from his own Doom Patrol book. Mm, interesting. I'm not sure, to be honest, because I can't remember Buddy actually going off and seeing a doctor within his own book. Yeah, I doubt this. I don't think he does. I think it all gets resolved with the aliens. Yeah, yeah. So who knows? Maybe it's just something he meant to uh, tie up and then never did. Could be. So later on, Jean and Buddy return to Buddy's house. And my favorite bit here is uh, when Maxine refers to Jean as the marshmallow hunter. Yes! It's awesome! It's so good! <laughs> Which is actually in the Marvel parody book, What the... John was known as the Marshmallow Manhunter. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I love that kitchen scene. And this, again, I, this, there's stupid things that I love. And this is what happens when I read comics. But, like, there's a scene where everyone's just sitting around the kitchen table. And, like, even the workers are sitting at the kitchen table. And there's just Still this... With beer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. But there's just this weird <laughs> sense of familiarity of everyone who's been in this issue is just hanging out, talking at the end. Which, I just... I like that. You know? Yeah. Again, it's it's the family. It's the kitchen table. That's where, the, that's where people hang out when they're, you know, with friends. They hang out in the kitchen for whatever reason. And it just feels like the typical family setting that Animal Man's so well establishing. 
Yeah, it's just a cosy domestic scene with mm-hmm. a seven-foot Martian. Exactly. <laughs> so then Jean turns his attention to dealing with Cliff's bullying problem, which, uh, again, is fantastically done. Um, but I feel that Jean takes a little too much pleasure in uh, scaring away a bunch of children. <laughs> he even says, I, I shouldn't really laugh, should I? Now, yeah. stuff like that is what makes me feel like this issue number nine is written as a JLI issue. You know, like. b- between some of those gags, the thing at the end, it really does. It feels like a JLI issue to me with buddy, with Animal Man in it. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that. But again, I think it's where they, they mesh together nicely. I mean, that's not entirely out of character for Jean to to enjoy those little moments, I suppose. He has yeah. done that in Justice League too. Yeah, John also has a little smirk when uh, Cliff says, why don't you get yourself some real powers, Dad? Oh, yeah. Harsh. And then after the story proper ends, we get a big full page ad for Justice League Europe just to hammer the point home that this is where you'll see Buddy next. Oh, nice. Okay. I'm reading from the trade, so I don't have that. Oh, it's a beautiful Bart Sears ad. It's superb. So, yes, yeah, so I, I love this issue. It's a, I think it's a fantastic integration of the JLI and Animal Man and those sort of proto-Vertigo world in the current DC universe. And it, it's interesting that John pops up in this and in Sandman as well, which I know you've already talked about, because I think he's an interesting character in that as a shapeshifter from another planet, he's kind of formless outsider between worlds who can adopt various roles. He's sometimes a superhero and noir detective, a pulp sci-fi alien. And this allows him to fit into the weird world of Vertigo much better than Superman or Wonder Woman. And in fact, I don't know if you've read the uh, Demetrius' Martian Man miniseries. I read it many, many years ago, but I haven't reread it in so long. It's worth revisiting. I, it's really interesting, and I think it's pretty much a proto-Vertigo title on its own right. Hmm. It's, it's uh, not a superhero adventure. It's this sort of psychedelic horror comic about grief and trauma and identity. And uh, Mark Badger does this amazing, wildly abstract experimental art in it. It's, 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 I think it's quite divisive, that art, to be fair. I mean, amazing is probably a, not a very sub- objective term. <laughs> but uh, I think it, it really works, and it's, had it been a few years later, I think it may have been a Vertigo book. Interesting. Okay, it's, is in that lineage, so it's, it's interesting that Jean's the one that they pick to show up in these books. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting. And, and now, folks, did a little inside baseball for you. We're recording these segments all out of order, so I may have already said this in this episode. I don't know, but it, it is amazing to me that there was a point in history where both Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman were relying on the goofball, silly Justice League to increase their sales. Yes, Neil Gaiman relied on Mr. Miracle to boost sales. That's insane. You know, I mean, look at look at Grant Morrison's career now. Look at freaking Neil Gaiman. My wife knows who Neil Gaiman is, and she doesn't know the first thing about comic books. And yet both guys uh, were leaning on the boahaha to increase their sales. That's, it's uh, how crazy the world's changed. Shows how big the Justice League was at that time. Yeah, know? absolutely true. Phenomenon. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into issue 16. All right, here we go. Why don't you describe the cover again? Okay, so here we have a French cemetery with the the time commander prone in the foreground and um, a very gloomy and sombre-looking squad of JLEers behind him. Uh, We have Elongated Man, Rocket Red, uh, Animal Man, and Metamorpho, looking very pensive and thoughtful. So, yeah, very moody cover, this one. Yeah, well, again, another great ball-in cover. And there's a little less detail in everyone, because you're right, they're moody, so they're further away from the camera, and their eyes are all shadowed. And you're right, especially Metamorpho. Pensive is exactly the word I was thinking, because he's got, like, a thumb to his chin, like he's, hmm, really thinking about it. And Animal Man, he just, it, it's a borderline of disappointment and pissed, is what Animal Man looks like to me. Yeah, there's a, certainly a sadness to it. And uh, 
I think Metamorpho is pondering his actions, which we'll see. Yeah. Perhaps not the wisest, but it's very cool. All these kind of goofy costumes look really cool as well, even Ralph. So. I was going to say, actually, a long gay man especially, he looks like a badass man on this yeah, cover. I've never seen him look like this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the first thing that really struck me in this one was the uh, little domestic scene again, which, like the previous issue, starts in Buddy and Ellen's house. And uh, Ellen is celebrating her offer of a publishing deal. It's just this one line where Buddy says, pack your suitcase, we're going to Paris in five minutes. And it's, he's just got this gleeful look like he's reveling in the uh, the privileges that JLI membership confers upon him. Absolutely. It's great. And actually, there's another thing in that same page I really like, which is Ellen. And, and throughout this whole issue, I love the way that she handles surprises. And, and Chaz Truog's the artist in this one, by the way. So it's a little bit different ourselves. Same making, though. But, but he runs off, right? He's so excited. He runs away in the house somewhere to do, go do something. He says, wait, wait right there. And she's sitting on the chair reading the letter that came about the book. And she's like, there's just one panel of her reading the letter. And then it's the same panel repeated. And she's just like, huh. And just like her, or she's astonished at her luck. And then later on, you know, she's meeting the Justice League. You know, wow, she's meeting the Justice League. Then later on, she's, you know, she meets a freaking dinosaur, you know. Uh, and then she gets, you know, she gets teleported. And just, I love the way that she handles, you know, really out of left field situations and she handles it so well i like that she'd better get used to it so. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh wow okay yeah that's true <laughs> dark <laughs> yeah <laughs> so then we uh, we cut to the paris embassy where we have sue and ralph doing their whole sue and ralph banter bit mm-hmm. where ralph is using the bathroom despite being in the next room also talking to sue oh so gross yeah but where well, you would wouldn't you it's convenient we have a rule in my house bathroom door always closed Always. Does that count if you're incredibly stretchy, though? I don't know. I, I, well, I don't know. But uh, just I would follow the same rules, I think. But there's, there's one odd thing there where uh, Ralph starts doing his nose twitching thing. Uh, he says, my mystery-loving nose is twitching already. And you know what that means? And Sue thinks, not says, but thinks, yeah, divorce proceedings. What did you make of that? I've had the foresight of reading your notes. You go through yours first because mine's more of a reaction to your comments. You go ahead. Okay. So we've seen a lot of banter between Ralph and Sue before. And it would not be at all out of character for Sue to say, uh, yeah, divorce proceedings. But for her to think it suggests she's actually considering that. And I don't buy that one for one second. Not with these two. Um, so I think that's a slight bit of mischaracterization by Morrison. What do you reckon? I'm completely on the same page. Other, Yeah, if it had been a word balloon instead, it would have been perfectly fine. The other thing, you, you could no prize it by just saying they're in the middle of something. She's taking a sip of her drink at that moment. So she's mm-hmm. not physically capable of saying the joke out loud. But she's thinking the joke in her head still. Because, yeah, at no point is she really thinking that for real. And I think Morrison's love of the Silver Age is so strong. Like, he was probably thrilled to get to write uh, Ralph and Sue. He was probably over the moon to get to write Ralph and Sue, you know? I don't think it's so much a slight. I think it's just, uh, it was just either a simple oversight. uh, But there's no way she's actually thinking that, like, in a serious manner. I think she's just thinking of the joke. Although, you know, one would be forgiven for considering divorcing Ralph, I would say. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's just me. (laughs) So then Ellen meets Metamorpho for the first time, who's in the shape of a chair. And that's an extremely cartoony panel, which uh, yes, we've seen from Metamorpho before. But I think generally on these two pages, the JLE are drawn in a more cartoony way than Buddy and Ellen. Generally, which is setting up something that I think will come back to where they're making this distinction between Buddy's world and the JLE's world. That's interesting. I hadn't considered that. I was just thinking more down to Chaz Truog. I'm not the world's biggest Chaz Truog fan. Uh, I think he's a very competent artist, but his just super cartoony style doesn't really, like the eyes especially, never sits well with me. So I'm not necessarily seeing the distinction between, well, okay, 
I kind of see what you're saying. You're right. You know, like if I look at Ralph and Sue, and then I flip the page and look at like the Time Commander, you're right. There is a there is a slight difference between the cartoony level and and Metamorpho. Hmm, okay, all right. I'll back your play. I'll back your play. Uh, we'll see how it develops, but I think it becomes a bit more apparent later on. But uh, okay. and also in the way it's it's written as well, the art and the writing kind of complement each other in this. I think. But but hey, we'll we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and I like that Ellen gets to meet his coworkers. That's kind of nice. Yeah. One of my favorite aspects of Animal Man is that he's a family man. I think that's great, and that is the kind of thing you do when you're married. You meet your spouse's co-workers at some point. And JLI is a workplace comedy. Exactly. It. Okay, so the next point of particular note is when we see a T-Rex on the streets of Paris. <laughs> I, for one, am always happy to see a dinosaur, regardless of context, but uh, in the modern world and in an elegant street like this, especially. Yeah. Page. And, it, uh, you know, Trog gives it a splash page, which is exactly what it deserves. It really fits well. Did you notice the name of the street? Not until you mentioned it, but that's perfect, which is uh, Rue Harryhausen. Yes, exactly. Which is great. I love that Harryhausen reference. That's nice. Valley of Guanji vibes there. So. There was another reference earlier. I didn't catch this. So full full credit to some wiki I was reading. But in the bathroom, uh, when Time Commander's changing, Time Commander, when he's changing clothes, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a statement. I'm not even going to try and read it. In French. And someone translated, and it translates to who watches the Watchmen. So I was like, oh, that's nice. I mean, it's been four years at this point or whatever, but that's that's like a nice little callback. Yeah, that's cool. And also on the dinosaur page, we also have a little yapping poodle barking at the tar- Tyrannosaurus, which is, I love that. I never even noticed it until you mentioned that. <laughs> It's virtually in the fold of the page. Yeah, it's easy to miss. Well, I'm in the trade, so it's uh, I can right, see it right, clearly. Right. I just didn't notice it. And Buddy's reaction is, as you would expect from someone seeing a dinosaur in the street, is just, oh, wow. <laughs> so then Buddy flies into action and knocks out the T-Rex with a great bit of purple prose from Morrison there. Although it did strike me that uh, this is, A, a very superheroic moment from Buddy, but as a vegetarian animal rights advocate, is it right for him to just leap straight into action by punching a dinosaur in the face? <laughs> I'm going to take the opposite position. I think it's actually exactly what Buddy would do because a couple different things. First of all, people are in danger and he is a hero. Mm -hmm. He helps people and he's not killing the dinosaur. He's only knocking it unconscious. And if you look at the animal world, I mean, animals are violent. I mean, they fight with each other. They, they're they aggressive with each other. They, maybe not to kill each other, but they defend their territory, things like that. And so I, I think there's probably, he probably senses some of that violence from animals. Again, not in a malicious way, but just in a defense kind of way. And you know, he's got to defend his wife. He's got to defend Paris. So I, I think him punching out the dinosaur, not killing it, but just punching it out, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. True, maybe. I'm just saying he hasn't really taken the T-Rex's feelings into consideration here. So. True, but yeah. it might it might also eat his wife. <laughs> I've only just noticed this. On page 12, the panel below where he punches out the dinosaur, mm-hmm. that poodle has met an unfortunate end. <gasps> <laughs> the dinosaur has trodden on the poodle, which goes yip, 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 and then is silenced. <gasps> wow. <laughs> if we were doing a Pwahaha award, that, that would be in the running, let me tell you, right there. <laughs> Now that I even know it exists, holy moly. So the rest of the JLE arrive and we start getting into the the plot, such as it is, of the Time Commander. There you go. um, Who I believe is a zany Haney creation. Mm, Nice. Um, As far as I could tell, he's only appeared twice before this in Brave and the Bold 59 and 69, um, the second of which was 1967, which is 20 years before this. Wow. And yet Ralph is very aware of his 1155 calling card. So, you know, it's, uh, kudos to Ralph. He does his homework there. Well, he's the, the, what, the, one of the greatest sleuths on the planet. Yeah, he's a professional. That's right. Deep dive into Hal Jordan's case files. So. But he's also mentioned, you may have covered this, uh, he's in an issue of Who's Who. 
where it mentions a, an adventure with Batman and the Outsiders that was never actually published. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, we, we would if he was in Who's Who, we would have covered it. Uh, but yeah. my memory of, of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of characters we've covered, I don't remember that specifically. Interesting. Okay. So it's the hidden history of the Time Commander. <laughs> Love it. So when the, the JLE and the Time Commander actually come to blows, it's not exactly a particularly exciting fight or... I don't know. It's, it almost seems kind of cursory in a way because uh, the point of it, I guess, is that Buddy is not fighting. Buddy refuses to fight. So these things sort of pass quite quickly. Uh, Time Commander removes Rocket Red or destroys Rocket Red's armor. He escapes from Metamorpho's cage and traps him in a, an hourglass. Uh, Ralph does very little, being Ralph. Um, yeah, but uh, there's some great poetic narration here from Morrison just uh, yes, becoming quite hallucinogenic and psychedelic about it. I, th- I love that page. I think that's great. With the uh, clocks falling apart? Uh, no, the previous page when uh, Dimitri is reduced to his boxer shorts. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It says, From some faraway street comes a long cry of a saber-tooth. A guillotine blade rings down. Biplanes buzz across blue, blue skies. The dead and the living are reunited and time is set free. Clocks stop. Hourglasses stop. Sundials stop. The years and the seasons are shuffled like playing cards. Blossom showers out of the trees, perfumed confetti for the alchemical wedding of time to time. There's no more death, nor any sorrow. The past is no longer another country. That's beautiful, and with your accent, it just makes it sound so much cooler. It's so sexy. It is! (laughs) (laughs) So I think at this point, this is when the book starts to become very Grant Morrison-y, very Animal Man, and sort of veers very far away from Jay Lee thing. Mm -hmm. It all starts to become quite metaphorical uh, in imagery and words, and uh, Time kind of talks about the doctors with the hammers that have led him to seek freedom and chaos and fun in making the world more interesting with dinosaurs and giant sundials. And he's seen himself in the future. He knows his future ends in hammers and violence, but there's nothing he can do about it. All he can do is go with the flow. So I think it says a lot about Buddy's character that he doesn't respond with violence. Um, as Jean was talking about previously, he's a, he's more of a, he has a greater overview. Yeah, he says, so just because I wear a costume doesn't mean I enjoy fighting. And he tries to reason with the Time Commander to uh, resolve this amicably. But that's when Metamorpho comes in and punches him in the face, which is the superheroic way of resolving an issue. But this has unforeseen consequences where the, the loved ones that have been brought back to life disappear and... Uh, Everyone stands around knowing that something bad has happened here and metamorpho is a bit of a loss as to why. If it resolved this problem this way in JLE, it'd have been fine. It'd been just another day. But that's not how things work in Buddy's world. Yeah, so this is something that is echoed later by Morrison in his JLA Earth 2, which explores the idea that narrative tropes are a fundamental part of the universe. And uh, in that story, the crime syndicate's Earth is one in which evil always wins. Hmm... So you've got these two different fictional worlds here coming together and they don't really operate well together. And, and I feel like there's also another message here too, though. I feel like, because there's so much emphasis, from, especially that part, the beautiful part you read, where there's so much emphasis on love in this issue mm-hmm. and how time's part of love. It's all tied together. And I feel like in some ways, the time commander is sort of uh, supposed to represent love and, and as he brings back people from the dead and how that love is frequently destroyed by like society norms or expectations. You know, he kept referring to doctors and things like that. I feel like love, what he's saying is love is frequently beaten down by the, by the normal people in society. And I think that's part of the message he's trying to convey here. It's also destroyed by time, which is something else he's trying to conquer. Hmm. You know the, the the expression that grief is the price we pay for love. Yeah, 
And there's probably some foreshadowing in here for Buddy and his family, too, I would think. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. which gets us into an area we're not going to go into. But if you haven't read this Animal Man run, you really should. I was, I was reading, rereading last night the first trade. And Morrison makes a really good point. He says, you know, one of the things that he's proud of with this run is that almost every issue is a standalone story. And yet there's this mythology that builds, especially towards the end. And if you go ahead and read the thing from beginning to end, it's only 24 issues in, in, a, in a Secret Origins issue. You really do go on a journey. And by the end... Uh, it's a story about comic books, really, is without saying much more. It is beautiful and touching and powerful, and I highly recommend it to everybody. Oh, it's amazing. It's one of the greatest runs ever. Yeah. If you've ever wanted to delve more deeply into Grant Morrison, this is kind of the fundamental foundation stone of his entire body of work. A lot of the themes he revisits in Animal Man, he revisits over and over again throughout the years in various iterations. So if you don't want to read X-Men or Batman, read Animal Man instead. <laughs> <laughs> So the interesting thing about this issue is that, to me, is that it breaks down some superhero cliches. It has a dig deep dive into comics history by bringing back the time, Commander. And uh, it kind of drives this wedge between Buddy and the JLE by treating them both really faithfully according to their own little worlds, their own fictional worlds. So whereas issue nine that we looked at tried to forge these links between Buddy and the Justice League, this issue shows why they're drifting apart, both as characters and as books, which will eventually diverge off into the Vertigo universe and the mainstream DCU. And to me, in this book, the JLE are a cartoon, almost literally. They're sort of drawn a bit more cartoonishly. And three of the most outlandish members are selected for the mission. But Buddy's a bit more real, at least as far as he knows. Although, in a few issues' time, he'll find out that's not the case. So I feel Morrison is... Yes, pushing Buddy away from the JLE because he doesn't fit in there, which we've also seen in JLE. He's out of place in that book, too. That's a really interesting observation about how the Justice League in here is supposed to be very cartoony and Buddy's supposed to be more real. I see what you're saying. I hadn't seen that going in. So uh, my next part is going to be a little different from that. Just I, and the, the question I want to ask is how faithful do we feel like the Justice League were in these two issues? Mm-hmm. I felt like in issue number nine, I felt like Martian Manhunter was very authentic to his portrayal in Justice League International. Whereas here, in this issue, again, this is before your sort of realization for me that the, the, the very purposeful split between Animal Man and Justice League. Uh, I, would, I was thinking that I felt like a long, elongated man in Sue uh, felt very authentic. You know, one word balloon aside, uh, I felt mm-hmm. like Sue and uh, elongated man were very, very authentic. But I felt like Metamorpho and Rocket Red, they were kind of generic. Like, they had a few, like, little character moments with specifically in dialogue. You know, Rocket Red has a very great one where he's referencing pop culture and all that stuff, which is very him. But in general, they don't feel like them to me. They just feel like, oh, these are just stand-in superheroes. Yeah. But maybe yeah, that's think- part of what you're talking about. Maybe all that's intentional. Yeah. Sue and Ralph's interchange is sort of stereotypically Sue and Ralph, but they're, you know, Ralph's a living cartoon anyway, but... And the bit with uh, Dimitri where he does his uh, I just love your English beat music, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Applejacks, Fab Gear, and flies off. I mean, that's not quite Dimitri, is it? That's, again, a cartoon version of Dimitri. That's fair, yeah. It's, it's a sort of hyper-exaggerated. And yeah. And we see him... Uh, stripped down to his boxer shorts and falling from the sky and yeah it's it's played for laughs he's a comedic cartoon character <laughs> on on that note the time commander completely destroys dimitri's armor which was a one-of-a-kind suit that he got from apocalypse so where did he get a replacement so i had the advantage of seeing that in your notes in advance so i have the no prize the sorry marvel Excellent. stealing your idea i've got the or the baldy award whatever i've got the excuse for it here which is the time commander the time commander you know as he did all these things every Everything got undone, right? All his time machinations got undone. Mm -hmm. So I think it it happens off screen just after the last panel of of, uh, Rocket Red. His armor reconstitutes itself as everything gets, gets undone. That's what I think happens. 
I will accept it. There we go. <laughs> I reluctantly accept it. Otherwise, it's just a horrible glaring omission, and I put that on Chaz Truog, because <laughs> I'm very hard on Chaz Truog. So. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, uh, we've, we've kind of wrapped up the discussion on the issues. I think it's time for the... One Punch Award. This is where we're going to nominate the most interesting, surprising, or enjoyable moment in the issues. Both myself and Matt will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. So, what you got, Matt? Well, because I didn't really read the instructions properly, um, <laughs> I'm actually going for the Boahaha Award instead. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Which is from Animal Man number 9, page 17, where Buddy wants to ask John one question as they're flying away. And he says, how did Blue Beetle get into the Justice League? And there's a one-panel pause before John says, hmm, good question. <laughs> you know, uh, this is the One Punch Award where anything literally in the comic could win. However, I myself picked the exact same moment from these two issues. because <laughs> it's it. <laughs> It's just too good. I mean, regardless of whether you're looking for impressive or amazing or whatever, I, I came very close to picking the one where Buddy was, uh, his senses went crazy and absorbing all the animal powers because I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. But this bit is, it's just comedic gold. It's that beat because it's four horizontal panels and you're right, they're flying away and there's that third panel where after he asks the question, no dialogue at all. So yeah, that as you could describe that pause, which is just beautiful. And uh, yeah. It's brilliant. So funny. Excellent. Well, that was easy. So. Yep. There we go. <laughs> so congratulations to Animal Man and Martian Manhunter. You have won the coveted One Punch Award, or in this case, really a Bwahaha <laughs> Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible, in this case, as the laughter we give you. So, all right. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. But man, I, I, you know, I know Matt has strong feelings on this too. Animal Man is such an amazing series. It's close to my heart. Uh, I have many action figures laying around in my office, but one of my ones I'm most proud of is the uh, Animal Man action figure from the 52 series. It's it's as close to a Brian Ball and Animal Man figure as I'm ever going to get. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it sits on my shelf with a point of pride because I love this series. And I love Buddy. You know, I, I rarely think of him as Animal Man. I think of him, unless I'm singing the song, Animal Man, Buddy. Doesn't really work. Exactly. But he's he's Buddy. So I, too, am a massive fan of Animal Man. It was a really pivotal book for me sort of as a comic reader and personally. I mentioned this last time. But I'm sitting here in my home office, which doubles as my comic room. And uh, I'm very minimalist when it comes to um, having prints up on the wall things like that and I have precisely one comic book cover on my wall framed and it is Animal Man number five the greatest single issue ever written and I recommend it highly so good and that single issue is the is the blueprint for the entire rest of the Animal Man series yep absolutely absolutely. yeah all right, Matt. Well, could you do me a favor? Uh, I have to go do the listener feedback, but I'm having a new security system installed here today, and the guys are coming pretty soon. Would you mind hanging out here and helping them test the new system? Probably. I don't expect any trouble, really. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, there won't be any lasers or anything, will there? Well, to quote Ellen, I could do without the laser beams. So, you know, I'll leave that to your call. You, you, you make your best judgment call. Okay, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but there is beer, right? Absolutely. Check the fridge. And I, I trust your decisions implicitly and look forward to whatever surprises might await me. So, uh, don't worry, Matt. We will bring you back at the end of the show, though. And while Matt is taking care of this for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. All 
right now, before we get into your feedback, just a little bit of news. The Justice League International Omnibus Volume 2 is apparently still happening, but it's been delayed from August until November. So I'm very interested to see if that thing will actually come out based on some of the creative team involved. Also, just in case you missed it, there was an episode of the Hero Points podcast recently, which is another show here on the Firewater Podcast Network, all about the DC Heroes role-playing game from the 1980s, where uh, myself and a few of the past guests of this show, Siskoid, David Gallagher, Boss, and Chris Franklin, we all got together and went through the Justice League International module called Exposed. Again, that's for the Mayfair Games DC Heroes role-playing game. We had an absolute blast. Now, we took some liberties with some specific characters, but it was definitely had a JLI blah-ha-ha feeling. We all had a blast, so Hope you enjoyed as well. Now, folks, remember, get out on the social medias. Use our hashtag FWPodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. Now, I'm about to cover your feedback from the last two episodes. We're going to be pulling comments from our website, email, social media, things like that. Now, we're going to be pulling just bits and pieces because normally there's a lot of feedback. But with two episodes, oh my gosh, it's tremendous. We're going to be talking about a couple of recent episodes, including the one where we covered the end of the Teasdale imperative with my guest Jeff Messer and Tim Price. Then we'll touch on our discussion of the Justice League of America TV pilot. Oof. With my guests Rob Kelly, Chris Franklin, and Max Romero. First off, we'll tackle JLA number 32 and JLE number 8 with the Teasdale Imperative. We heard from Sean Ross from the Pulta Pixel Podcast Network, including shows such as Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond. Sean wrote, Great show, guys. I've forgotten the details of this crossover and he did a great job reminding me of an exciting arc. And then regarding Justice League Europe, he says, I'm so sad to see J.M. DiMatteis go as scripter. Bill Mesterlobes wrote a really strong Flash run, but there's no magic like Giffen and Demetrius. You're not wrong, Sean. Hmm. We're from Damien Drowett Whiter from the England Embassy, and he just started his own podcast you guys should be checking out called Should I Love This Comic? Damien wrote, You got the bohaha moment all wrong on JLA. It should have been when Batman tells Metamorpho, You're not being rational. And Metamorpho says, You're standing there dressed in a bat suit and talking about what's rational? That is gold. <laughs> that is a great moment. Then Damien says, you ask who Adam Hughes' regular inker is, and he really doesn't have one on JLA. Joe Rubenstein, Art Nichols, and Jose Marzan Jr. pretty much rotate through his run. This is unusual for an era where inkers would be pretty consistent, although it's not too jarring as both Nichols and Marzan both worked as assistants to Rubenstein. Hmm, that does give some consistency, doesn't it? Then he let us know about his new podcast called Should I Love This Comic, where he and his husband are reviewing comics that they love from their collection. At the time he wrote this comment, he said, Episode 1 is already released, and I'm currently editing Episode 2 and prepping Episode 3, which features Dr. Fate. He says, It's been a great creative outlet, but I have to say Shag and his pals make it look easy. I'm learning podcasting in public, so I think anyone who listens will see us getting better episode by episode. It's definitely a learning process, and we're having fun, which is half the battle. Oh, that's awesome. By the way, the other half the battle is blue and red lasers. But anyway, he I nearly forgot to say, you discuss connections between the Spectre and JLI, and I think the key one is the last 16 issues of Spectre are all edited by Andy Helfer. This is reflected in how many artists who worked on Spectre end up in the JLI, including Chris Wozniak, Tom Artis, Bart Sears, and Tim Gula. Wow, that's a great connection, Damien. I didn't even catch that. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as those wonderful toys on our YouTube channel, JLU Cast and many more. Chris writes, fun show. I wonder if Teasdale's yeah 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 ha ha was inspired by Beanie and Cecil's stereotypical villain Dishonest John, who famously laughed yeah ha 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 constantly. You know, Chris, JMT Mateus loves a pop culture reference, so it very well could have been. 
Chris goes on to say, do you think this scene with Wally in the hospital and Power Girl is earned? Especially the way Wally's been acting in these pages? Honestly, I wouldn't want that version of Wally to be left alone in a room with an unconscious woman. Nice to hear he's going to get a personality transplant beginning next issue. Even Mike Barron's Wally wasn't as reprehensible as the early JLE version. My only real problem with the book, then and now. That's a fair point. Well, Tim Price came back and says, I do think Wally's scene is earned. He and Kara had a great chemistry in issue number three, and in his own series, he was not nearly the horn dog that he's been seen to be in JLE. So I totally believed it. But he really plays it as a Sam and Diane game. It's only fun for Wally when he gets a reaction out of Kara. With her in a coma, it's not fun anymore. I think his dialogue sells this well. Hmm, that's a really interesting way to look at it, Tim, and I appreciate it. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from our Irish Embassy. Jimmy writes, Irish Embassy here, trying to promote social distancing in the various embassies. My big plan is to place Guy Gardner in the center of the embassy and have him pick his nose. That should keep the other JLEers from gathering in large groups. <laughs> that plan could very well work, Jimmy. Jimmy says, I wondered when rereading this how Teasdale was able to walk with the zombie horde without them turning on him. But there's a line of dialogue that says he has control over them. How he had control was never elaborated on, but hey, comics. You know, Jimmy, you bring up a good point. How did Teasdale control that mob? They never did talk about that. Jimmy goes on to say, I don't know if you had mentioned the house ad for the crossover in the podcast last time out. I remember seeing it once and really liking it. It looks like GIF and art. So Jimmy was then kind enough to send me a scan of the ad. I'll put it in the image gallery. But it shows like three little TV monitors at the top. It says, total devastation of Balkan villages. And then it says, no bodies have been found. And then the Justice League are in pitched battle. But who or what are they fighting? And then it shows like a really devastated street and maybe a European village. And there's a quote. It says, uh, guys, I think we have a situation here. <laughs> I like that. A lot of fun. I'll put that in the image gallery, like I said. Then we heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo from our Brazilian embassy. He says, after this podcast, I really like this crossover more, especially Batman returning and taking control as if he were the leader, as if he hadn't dumped the group countless times in addition to calling them idiots. Furthermore, the fact that the League is risking their lives to save a small village in Europe is what makes me like it more than the JLA by Grant Morrison. They may not be gods, but they care about people and risk themselves. Isn't that what heroes do? Nicely put, Everton. Thank you. Then we heard from Ryan Daly from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Cheers Cast, and many more. He says, I have to confess that while this story sounds really good, I have a hard time taking it seriously because the epically unimpressive name. For real. I found myself getting more and more irrationally angry every time you said Teasdale Imperative. Like that's supposed to mean anything to anyone. Like to the point where if I had been the editor of this book, I would have required Giffen and Dimateus to change the title or they wouldn't be getting paid for these issues. Well, folks, if you know Ryan, Ryan getting irrationally angry is kind of just a regular day thing. But in order to irritate Ryan a few times more, I'd like to say Teasdale Imperative, Teasdale Imperative, Teasdale Imperative. That's a long-distance dedication to Ryan Daly. All right, folks, then we heard from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy. He also does the Two Dangers for a Girl blog. You're right, Shag, the Justice League were willing to die for a few hundred people, but the original Doom Patrol actually get knocked off for just a dozen or so. And anyway, should numbers come into it? If a hero can sacrifice themselves to save someone weaker, they should. It shouldn't come down to, if I die now, I won't be able to save more people down the line. Trust others to step up when needed. Yeah, you make a good point with the Doom Patrol, Martin, and now I just think you're trying to one-up me. So thanks for that, buddy. Uh, <laughs> then we heard from uh, David Ace Gutierrez, owner and operator of the Katana Banana Fruit Stand, who, by the way, they have curbside pickup now. David says, I never liked that Power Girl got depowered to the Golden Age Superman levels. I think she'd have been served better if she'd been given an entirely different set of powers. And to add insult to injury, her upcoming costume, yikes! Well, 
this may come as a shock, David, but I'm going to disagree with everything you just said. I like the fact that if, if they have to bring her down from epic Superman levels, making her Golden Age Superman just seems to make perfect sense. I mean, she is the Golden Age Superman, Earth 2 Superman's cousin originally. So having that sort of connection, connective tissue, makes a lot more sense. If they just given her absolutely new powers, it would have kind of thrown away her identity and who she was. So I, I like that they brought her down to Golden Age Superman power levels. And her costume, the yellow one, that is, you know, barring her original outfit, obviously. That is the best costume they ever put together for Kara. It's great. First of all, it covers her head to toe, which is very unusual for a female superhero in this time. And uh, I think the colors look strong when they're illustrated well. Now, there's times when it's not illustrated well. Either way, that's, a, I guess, a discussion for the future. We're going to have a lot more conversations about Power Girl's costume. And I don't believe, my memory may be playing a trick on me, I don't believe we'll get to that really, really hideous third costume, the uh, the red, white, and blue one with the triangle window. Oh, that, was thing, that thing, and the headband, that thing was terrible. Then we heard from Symbol Pending, who runs the Power Girl blog, and they just wrote, Power Girl, no! Completely understand. They were from Doug Van Diver. He said, on page three of the JLE issue, Blue Beetle says, we seem to have lost our suits, which I guess addresses what happened to the leaguer's PPE in the middle of the JLA book. And that's fair. But is Beetle also quoting a line of dialogue from that movie that Guy took Tora to see a few issues back? We seem to have lost our suits. Oh, Doug, dude. Oh, I feel like I need a shower now. <laughs> they were from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz wrote, impressive podcast, most impressive. Liz goes on to say, wait, couldn't Flash, Metamorpho, or Power Girl, or someone create a whirlwind to get the gas away from the soldiers? Hmm. You make a fair point, Liz. Uh, someone could have used their powers to blow the gas away. Hmm. Then regarding uh, Elongated Man and his wiggling nose, Liz writes, I've seen people wiggle their nose all the time. In fact, it was a big thing and bewitched. Not sure why it would bug Beetle. Also, there are zombie people running around ripping people in half, and he's worried about Ralph's nose? Good observation, Liz. Thank you very much. They were heard from Steve Cronin, who wrote in to say, You mentioned briefly how Flash's audience at the time did not always like his portrayal. It got me wondering, how was Guy Gardner portrayed in other books at this time? Did he have his own book? Was he less, well, difficult in other books? Well, Tim Price stepped up to respond. Thank you, Tim. Tim says, In the lead-up to Legends in Justice League number 1, Guy regularly appeared in the Green Lantern Corps. And in my opinion, he was even more reprehensible, almost villainous in that title, as he always fought other Green Lanterns in his appearances there. Justice League International kept him as an uber jerk, but made him part of the team. By this time, there was no monthly Green Lantern title, so Guy only appeared in the series with the rare guest appearances elsewhere, and they usually stayed pretty close to his characterization here. So yes, he was always difficult. And I'll follow that up, Steve, by saying once they launched the new Green Lantern book, the, the monthly ongoing where they would rotate between uh, Hal, John, and Guy, uh, I would say Guy's characterization was very much the Justice League International characterization at that point, which eventually led to Guy getting his own series. You heard from Mike Dynas from the Canadian Embassy. He says, Adam Hughes is the reason why I kept on collecting JLA. The reason I love the humor of this series and why I thought it worked so well is the facial expressions of McGuire, Templeton, and Hughes. Like Shag pointed out, that panel of Blue Beetle squinting is just perfect. That's not to say that J.M.D. Mateus and Giffen couldn't do some powerful emotional beats like the Power Girl flash scene at the end of JLE, but it's the humor that brought me into the book, so it helped to have an artist that could convey that humor. Also, Power Girl's next costume is what I consider the mom jeans of costumes. Still better than her third costume. Ah, uh, again, people attacking Power Girl's yellow costume. Ah, oh, that frustrates me. You know, we had a huge discussion about this on the Who's Who podcast a while back. Check out the Who's Who podcast in the Loose Leaf edition, where we talked about Power Girl's yellow costume, and then the next episode where we covered the feedback, there was all kinds of feedback about 
Power Girls costume. Based on these comments, sounds like we're going to be doing it all over again here. Oh, goodness. All right, then we're from Matthew Cody. who says, congratulations, Shag, on sweeping the Bwahaha Awards this episode with your picks. I think your proclivity of watching the Harlequin show may have influenced your nominations because of the deaths which would have followed your pick in JLA and the grisly scene in JLE. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Um, yeah, I am kind of enjoying the Harlequin series. I haven't watched season two yet, but I loved season one. Then heard from Paul Monk. says, part three of this crossover was the first comic I bought when holidaying in the States, so it holds a special place in my affections. Oh, that's awesome, Paul. All right, folks, now we're going to get into your discussions of the Justice League of America TV pilot. Oof, man. There was a lot of a lot of discussion around that thing, let me say. Also, I really enjoyed all the jokes about the Snyder Cut of the Justice League of America TV pilot. Those are hilarious. We heard from Gene Hendricks, who does the Class 1000 Marvel RPG podcast, and he's a member of the Two True Freaks Podcasting Network. He says, we watched this for the first time last night. Considering that it was done on a 1997 budget, it's actually not that bad. Glad you enjoyed it, Gene. Then heard from Mike Staley from the Silent Night, the Cassandra Cain podcast. Mike says, one thing I found most interesting about this pilot is the portrayal of Guy Gardner. When I first discovered Guy, I hated him with a passion. My stance on him has changed since. Yet even when I disliked the character, I was bothered by him not being the loudmouth jerk I was used to in this movie. Movie. Though the idea that Rob brought up about Guy probably changing from first script to final film seemed pretty accurate. Hoping my agreeing with something that Rob said doesn't penalize my email getting read. Hmm. Mike agreed with Rob Kelly. Note to self, edit this whole piece out. All right, uh, up next, Chuck Coletta from the Bowling Green State University Pop Culture Conference. He writes, Pandemic, Economic Collapse, Murder Hornets, Cicadas, Political Strife, and now this? Meaning the JLA TV pilot. Haven't we been through enough? <laughs> Sorry, Chuck, not even close. 2020 still going, buddy. Then heard from David Gallagher, professional author of comics and games and friend of the network. He said he was listening now. You know, the scary thing is I haven't heard from him since uh, he, he wrote that comment, so I'm not sure he survived the movie. I heard from Ryan Daly again. He says, I've never seen this, and now I never will. Thank you for your service. No problem, Ryan Daly. And by the way, Ryan, I meant to say, Teasdale Imperative. All right, then we heard from Michael Kramer. He writes in that he recalls a Wizard JLA special that said that the existence of this pilot was actually listed as a reason why it took so long for the Justice League to animate series to be made. Well, then Michael dug out his uh, second Wizard JLA special, scanned it in and sent me an image of it, and he's right. There's a quote right in here from Bruce Tim. It says, it's tying up the TV rights to the JLA, says Superman producer Bruce Tim. We couldn't do the JLA right now if we wanted to. Ooh, snap! Glad that finally worked itself out and gave us that wonderful series, which, by the way, you can hear more all about in the JLU cast right here on our network. Plug! Alright, then we heard from Robert McCarthy, who does the Hell on Wheels comic strips. He wrote the Weathermen were a domestic terrorist group in the early 70s. Maybe they evoking that rather than the very comic book Weather Wizard. Come on, if Bruce Banner was too comic book? <laughs> oh, Bruce Banner getting changed to David Banner in the 70s. Oh, goodness. And we're from David Ace Gutierrez again. Warner Brothers have been trying to get a Justice League live-action show off the ground since Batman hit big. That's how you ended up with The Flash. He actually spun out of a different pitch. Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, hope I'm saying that right, had been asked to consult on this thing. They quickly stepped away after seeing what was happening with it. Then David goes on to say about the costumes. Yes, they aren't good. Yes, they are rough. But I think you guys are forgetting something pretty important from a production standpoint. The costume department is responsible for multiple versions. There are at least two outfits made per main actor. And the quote-unquote hero version, which is the one used for close-ups, is always the most expensive. The show needed a set for each main character, and this eats up significantly into the budget. And he says the special effects, wonky, yes. But this is the late 90s. Well, Star Trek was around, they didn't have to create an effect for each of their leads. The show had to figure out how to do an icing effect, flying, 3D constructs, shrinking, morphing, fire stuff, speed, and weather stuff. That's a lot. And that eats into your budget, too. 
I think the problem is this show tried way too much. And you may be right, David. I hate to admit that. In fact, it, it hurts me to physically say those words. Then we're from Siskoid from our Canadian embassy, also a member of the Fire and Water Podcast now, work a show such as Oh Hot Moo or Not and Fire and Water Team Up and many, many more. Uh, he just wrote in to uh, draw a comparison between the JLI TV pilot and Superman Meets the Quick Bunny, <laughs> which I think is actually a stealth plug for his own show. Then Captain Entropy writes in to say, I'm only a few minutes in, but it occurs to me that the Patreon works as a kind of 21st century dunking booth. I approve. <laughs> You're not wrong, Captain Entropy. Then we heard from Ranger Gord from our Canadian embassy. He says, I do think now that the Marvel MCU and to some extent the DCEU and the Berlantiverse has given us all the cookies and ice cream we wanted and left us with a snobbish aftertaste of the old ribbon candy left in Grandma's living room. <laughs> I like that analogy. It says, in terms of the study of history, we call it presentism, and it's never a fair assessment of a bygone era or project. I agree with what everyone has said about it, and now that I see the full production, I think the JLA pilot does have more of a cookie flavor than we know. You know, Ranger, you make a good point. It's, it's surprising how much we really enjoyed this on the rewatch, uh, considering how much we all sort of despised it the first times we saw it. All right, then we heard from Symbol Pending again from the, from the Power Girl blog. Symbol Pending says, personally, I'm a character kind of person, obviously, so I quite like the talking head moments the most, though I don't recall much of the plot, so that really says a lot. Absolutely. Heard from Robert Lewis, who says, Thanks, guys. I haven't laughed this hard in two months, but I have to admit, I'm going to dig this out in the morning. Once again, thank you for the joy. Aw, that's great, Robert. Glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. We heard from Tim Price from the Huntress Podcast and a recent guest of the show. Tim says, I've never seen this before, so thank you, Shag, for posting the link to view it before listening to the show. And you know what? That's a sincere thank you. Was it a good pilot? Nah. But did it have good things? Heck yeah. And I have no regrets for watching it. Then Tim says, another infamously bad TV pilot was made for Power Pack. And then Louise Simon said of it on another podcast, which I believe is uh, Unpacking the Power Pack with Jeff and Rick. Louise said, they tried so hard. <laughs> and Tim felt the same way about this JLA pilot. No, that's that's a fair comparison. Or from Mark Baker Wright from Black Rock's Toy Box. Mark writes, I am shocked that Shag somehow managed to never utter the word she's hot by either of the two female leads. Can I have my money back? <laughs> Sorry, Mark. I actually spent all of that on Bazooka Bubblegum, so no you can't. But I will say, right now, fire and ice, smoking hot. And Brian Hughes from the Third Degree Burn podcast says, I have to say, there's one really good special effect in the show. The tidal wave scene. You may not know this, but I'm sure you do. But the tidal wave scene was taken from the deleted scene of James Cameron's The Abyss. I spotted it the very first time I watched the pilot. Whoa! I had no idea, Brian. That is really interesting. Thank you. Then we hear from Chris Lewis, who's affiliated with the Storium Arc podcast. Chris says, There seemed to be far too much tell-don't-show in this script. Tora's opening words of the pilot are about how underconfident she is. And Ray tells us in every other sentence what an unlucky-in-love nice guy he is. In any medium, a more engaging story would show those traits being played out in the scenes rather than a character verbalizing them right out loud. Interesting. Chris also goes on to say, My main issue with the characters was that I just wasn't interested in them. The team's civilian identities were all, to one extent or another, dull losers in ways that were well-worn and predictable tropes. Now, being unfamiliar with the real world, the interstitial interviews to the camera reminded me of nothing so much as the couple's interviews during the movie When Harry Met Sally. Perhaps that might explain why the JLA characters seemed more flirtatious and intimate with one another in these scenes. Wow, Chris, you know, I didn't even think about the interstitialism when Harry met Sally. Great comparison. Then Chris goes on to say, oh, 
And as someone who grew up in 1970s Doctor Who, let me assure Rob that you can still do some okay costumes on more limited budgets than this show had. <laughs> as a uh, Doctor Who fan myself, I really appreciate that comment, Chris. Thank you. Heard from Max Traver, who does the Max Reads Comics blog. Max wrote, okay, so I tried to do my homework and watch the pilot, but I didn't make it very far. The amateurish bad acting I can forgive, as I can actually enjoy the Superboy live-action show for what it is, but the utterly random characterization just yanked me out of the show. Yes, it's a case of knowing the source material being an obstacle to enjoyment. However, I agree that the lack of cynicism was apparent, and if anything, all of your comments during the wrap-up have perhaps, perhaps, convinced me to give this thing another shot. That's awesome, Max. Heard from Liz Ann Oswald again. Liz says, Michelle Hurd was great as fire. And yeah, Shag is right. She is the Rachel. Ice was kind of a Phoebe, only she didn't sing. If they brought in the cat from the JLE, she could have sung Smelly Cat. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Then we heard from Mike Zumo, who says, I think David Ogden Steyer spent more time in green makeup during this pilot than all the other Martian Manhunter actors combined. You're <laughs> probably right. Then we heard again from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy and the Two Dangers for Girl blogs. Martin says, I was lucky enough to see this on broadcast TV in the UK years ago. Ago, Channel 5, I think, and found it fun. We had the print with the interviews. You know, within two minutes, it's not going to be a true-to-comics masterpiece. But what proportion of anything is brilliant? It's cheesy nonsense inspired by the Bwahaha Justice League, and as such, it's a fun time passer. Ah, that's a really nice way to look at it, Martin. Then we heard from Mike Dynas from the Canadian Embassy. He says, there are parts that were enjoyable, all of the ice and atom interaction, but you could almost hear an executive producer saying things like, I don't get this. Why are there two green heroes and an alien who has a green face? Too much green. Make one teal. The public will understand it better. <laughs> it feels like the pilot was suggested by comic book fans and run into the ground by producers, or at least twisted it into something that was never resembled the original pitch. The one fun moment that made me laugh out loud is during the interstitials when Ray Palmer is sinking down into the floor like he's going down in an elevator, you can hear someone off-screen laugh. I agree with Shag that some of these scenes were probably ad-libbed and he just made some of the crew laugh. Hmm. Thank you for agreeing with me. Then we heard from Siskoid from the Canadian Embassy again in the Firewater Podcast Network, and he comes back with another plug for himself. He says, watch it for a reference to the JLA pilot in the next Unlocked Patreon content episode. All right, Siskoid, the master of the plug. Heard from Jimmy McGlinchey again from the Irish Embassy. He says, the film, with all the interview sections included, was actually shown on Irish TV. I remember in the 1990s looking at the Irish TV listings in the newspaper and seeing the Justice League film advertised to be shown at 4.30 in the morning. I set the VCR to tape it and watched it the following day. It was not what I expected. <laughs> Heard from Paul Monk who says, did you ever see a superhero film called The Specials with Rob Lowe? They used the interview to the camera idea in that to make the focus of the film. Paul says, the superhero team's day off is the general idea. Hmm. I may have to check that out. Then Brian Rosen wrote in to say, It was rough, but I'm glad I saw it all. I just watched it at face value. Didn't think about them as analogs for popular shows at the time, and as you go on and discuss Friends, I totally agree. Thanks, Brian. Now I've got some general messages we've received, so I'll just run through those real quick. We're from George Pooley from the England Embassy. Says, just wanted to email and say, I love the podcast. I started listening from the beginning during lockdown here in the UK. I'm listening through the old episodes while sitting at my desk working. Thanks for putting out such a great podcast and definitely helped me get through this period of uncertainty. He also wanted to share some frame JLI issues he has, specifically some featuring the dynamic duo Booster and Beetle. He shared an image here of a triptych. It's got like three comic covers all framed together really nicely with a mat. It's Justice League International number 8, Moving Day. Justice League International number 21, the one where they're on the Apocalyptian rubble. And then Justice League International number 34, which is the Kahui 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 beach scene. So, uh, awesome. That is fantastic. There from Dave at the Retro Cabal. He did a, what he called a little silly mashup, his words, of the JLI and the Orville. He did a little drawing of it, post on Twitter. It's adorable, where he changed out several of the Orville heads for JLI characters. And uh, just seeing some of the parallels. 
Then I heard from Jason Lady, who's the author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novel called Monster Problems. Jason wrote in, he says, I've recently discovered your JLI Blahaha podcast, and I'm loving it, and I've been binging episodes. He talks about his uh, novel Monster Problems, which was released in December 2019 from Black Rose Writing, and he's working on the prequel right now. But he says the JLI's irreverence, humor, and optimism have been a huge influence on his writings and continue to inspire him. Then he gives us his origin story. I love origin stories, folks. He says, believe it or not, I first became aware of the JLI and its associated characters while living in Germany. Oh, he was in our German embassy. He says, my dad was in the army and stationed there in the 1980s. The base we lived on had a little bookstore where my dad and I first started collecting comics together. In the beginning, we were exclusively Marvel guys, buying things like X-Men and New Mutants, X-Factor and Spider-Man, Avengers, stuff like that. But every so often, I'd look at the DC shelves and I remember being intrigued by what I saw. Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Captain Adam, Mr. Miracle, Justice League International. It all looked so colorful and fun. From cartoons and toys, I knew that at least the basics about all the famous characters like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman and such, but I had no idea who all these other characters were. I remember being so interested, but there was only so much money to go around, so we focused on the Marvel stuff. Fast forward a few years, we moved back to the States, this time stationed in Fort Knox, Kentucky. My dad and I discovered the glories and splendor of the local comic shop. This one was called Comics to Go, and we got to know the owner, and we're in there almost every Saturday morning picking up our pull list, just hanging around and talking to the owner and going through the back issues. Where did we discover the JLI? Well, the store owner kept talking the series up to us, and we started to get interested. Then I picked up one of those free comic book preview things that had a few pages from different series in it. This one had the infamous One Punch scene in it. Our whole family thought it looked hilarious. When I got a gift certificate to Walden Books, oh, Walden Books, oh man, I miss Walden Books. Anyways, when I got the gift certificate to Walden Books, I used it to buy the Justice League A New Beginning trade paperback. We were diving headlong into a whole new world, and we were instantly hooked. A few years ago, I did a big purge in my combo collection, and naturally, I kept all of my JLI, JLA, JLQ, Justice League Antarctica, and Beetle and Booster Comics. They sit on a shelf in my house to this day. My dad has since passed away, but I have a lot of fond memories discovering the world of JLI with him. Ah, Jason, that is a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and welcome aboard. Then we'll hear from Paul Iams. Probably saying that wrong, Paul. I apologize. Thank you for bringing the JLI back to my life. I'm almost caught up and look forward to more. My only issue is you said you were the only fan of Primal Force. Not only was I a fan, I even wrote a not great screenplay about it. Is that something I should admit? Yes, Paul, you absolutely should. Everyone needs more Primal Force in their lives. Then we'll hear from Rafael Monteiro de Castro from our Brazilian embassy. Because I would like to understand why that guy says braces before he dies in Justice League Europe number one. I'm in Brazil and this was omitted in the text in Portuguese. Well, uh, Raphael, that's a great question. We've been wondering it ourselves since the JLE number one. So I went ahead and reached out to J.M. DiMatteis and asked him. And J.M. DiMatteis says, I'd love to reveal some deep, dark comic secret, but I have no memory of that. Sorry. Hope you and yours are staying safe and healthy. Uh, very kind of J.M. DiMatteis response. We appreciate that. But we still don't have an answer. We did get some speculation on Twitter. Uh, someone who goes by The Great One on Twitter says that they thought Braces was a reference to the suspenders that Jack-O-Lantern wore and thinks it might have been explained in a letter column. Hmm. Well, I'll put that to you folks at home. If anyone remembers a letter column where they explain braces, please help me out. I would really like to know. Also, my favorite response, though, came from John from the Married with Comics podcast uh, regarding the braces thing. He says, Wonder Woman took the clue with her. <laughs> That's a good one, John. Thank you. All right, folks, this is the part where we thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their social media timeline. This is Facebook and Twitter. And yes, I know, it's a long list of names. You don't have to tell me. However, these folks showed their support and helped promote the show. So I feel like it's really, really important that we recognize these individuals. They're part of our family. They're part of the JLI community. And they're out there helping promote the show, which brings in 
in more listeners. So this time out, we're looking at nearly 80 names. Wow, you guys are amazing. Uh, folks who helped promote the, uh, the last couple episodes. So our thanks go out to Aaron Head Moss, Al Girding, Baby Skeletor, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold Facebook Group, Boosterific.com, Charlton Hero, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Cluck Trent, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Collected Edition, Damian Whiter, Daniel Paul Harder, David Retro Cabal, David Ace Gutierrez, Digest Cast, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine, Dr. Pop Culture Bowling Green State University, Frederico Hernandez, Film and Water Podcast, For All Mankind Super Friends Podcast, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, The Headcast Network, Issues with Facebook page. It's Plastic Man. Ian Chudley. Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist. Jeff Messer. Jeff Pollier. Jeremy Daw. John from Married with Comics. Jose Rivera. Joshua Ox. Justin Steiner. Kelly Dragon. Con L. Liz Ann Oswald. Luke Dobb. Mark Lax. Martin Gray. Martin Kogan. Mashcast. Matt Ev. Max Romero. Michael Kramer. Middle Quick. Mike Dynas. Mo Walker. Mountain Comics. Nuno Duarte. Our favorite podcast. Paul Hicks. Paul Eams. Paul Kean. Pod Dylan, Pragmatic Gollum, Relatively Geeky, Rob Kelly, Roger Preeb, Ryan Daly, Scott X, Sean Ross in the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, Sean Merrick, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Super Lad Kid, Superman Movie Minute, The Mirror Factory, Tim Price, Treasury Comics, Warlord Thanos podcast, Warlord Worlds, and Zeb Oswald. Whew, man, my thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. Now, as always, I ask if you haven't left an iTunes review, please consider taking a moment to go out there and leave one. It really helps raise the profile of the show, and other JLI fans will find the podcast, and our family will grow, just like we've seen in this feedback. We've got lots of new listeners. So, uh, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It was probably the fault of Jeff Messer or Tim Price. Just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming. You can go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave your comments on the show post there or you can head over to facebook at justly international blah ha podcast or on twitter we're jli podcast and of course we've got an email jli podcast at gmail.com we're in so many places there's no real excuse why you can't leave feedback hmm all right my thanks again to jeff messer tim price rob kelly max romero chris franklin for appearing on recent episodes and thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from those episodes now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break we come back we'll see if we can bring mike bradley and matt together in the same embassy Did you leave the car running, Andy? I did. I'm not sure why, but I did. It, it, it's important. Like getting these comics from Ryan and Chris's Nightcast offices. Why are we getting these comics from Ryan and Chris? So, since Nightcast isn't covering what they originally set out to cover, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Jim Starlin run of Batman. So, we're getting the comics from them to do that. And, and they know that we're doing this? What? That we're covering Batman issues 414 to 430? Yeah, totally. I, I checked in with them and everything. So you got permission to get these comics, which includes the storylines, Ten Nights of the Beast, The Cult, and The Death in the Family. I totally told them we were covering these books, yes. And we're starting these episodes in May. That is, if you actually edit them on time. Yeah, Andy. The, the series starts in May and can be found on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Busting my balls and everything. All right, right, right. let's let's hurry up. There are listeners that want to hear this, and I have to get back to Atlanta in 28 hours so I can get my flight home. No problem. I got the comics right here. What's going on here? Andy? Mike? What are you doing here? Why do you have our comics? Say, Mike? Yes, Andy? 
we didn't get permission to take these comics, did we? No, Andy. And when you told me to get the box out of the car, you were really picking the lock to get in here? Yes, Andy. So what do we do now? Well, uh, we could try to talk our way out of this, but when I tell you to run, run! The Overlooked Dark Knight covers the Jim Starlin Batman run, a multi-part series of episodes beginning in May of 2020. From the grisly dumpster killings, to a death in the family, and everything in between. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailytude podcasting network, located at www.fortressofbailytude.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and Spotify. I'm gonna barbecue your ass in molasses! Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought Mike, Bradley, and Matt together for us. First of all, Mike, I'm glad to see your corporeal again. Wonderful. And my thanks to you for appearing on the show. Why don't you tell the people at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, now that I'm finally free of that damned painting shag, <laughs> oh, um, yes, uh, if people want to uh, head over to waitingfordoom.com, they can find our shows, Waiting for Doom, the podcast. Uh, we also do DC OCD, which is the DC events podcast, and another show called The Gary Show, which is basically my good buddy and podcast co-host, Paul Hicks, just talking about all sorts of different stuff. But yeah, we're, we're on uh, waitingfordoom.com, and I'm also on Twitter, usually most odd hours of the day, at uh, Avant. Garf and come say hi and hang out talk comics and cool stuff yeah awesome well thanks so much for being here mike really appreciate it and you mentioned your partner paul paul's a past guest of the show too because apparently i know the only two australian podcasters so there we go <laughs> thanks mike thanks shag thanks for having me lots of fun and now bradley i really really appreciate you being on the show this was super fun exploring sandman so why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs well right now i am mostly a listener and an enjoyer of other people's stuff i do plan always to ramble on someday in my own podcast but i just haven't gotten there yet um so for right now i'm just enjoying it with everybody else so yay me <laughs> <laughs> well that's awesome well it's been an absolute blast having you here and until you launch your Null Zone podcast, yeah, I'm calling my shot here, Null Zone, then I will watch for that when it finally comes out. Thank you so much, Bradley. <laughs> Thank you. And finally, Matt, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. I love talking about Animal Man, and I mean, you just have so much deep thoughts on the series. Every time we talk about Animal Man, you're telling me stuff that I'm like, oh, of course that's what that means, and why didn't I see that? So I love hearing your insights on that comic. So why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the internet? Thanks very much, Shag, and thanks for having me. It's been a delight. You can always find me at my now defunct blog that I no longer update, uh, which is uh, Ultron is my Elvis. <laughs> and there's also a Facebook page by the same name that I no longer update. Just just sheer laziness on my part. Uh, <laughs> but if it wasn't for that blog, we wouldn't have met. <laughs> it's true. Also, you can find me, as mentioned, on the Fire and Water Geek fitness page, hanging around upside down most of the time. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. That's going to do it, folks. Come back next episode when we return to our regular coverage of the monthly series. We're going to discuss Justice League America number 33 and Justice League Europe number 9. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You just have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shang. And I'm Mike. And I'm Bradley. And I'm Matt. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?